At 5.45 a.m. on April 5, 1976, a local doctor, Victor Montemayor, was summoned to the Princess Hotel in Acapulco, Mexico. The man on the phone had been light on details, saying only that he had to come immediately to examine an important patient who was very sick. Dr. Montemayor took the service elevator to the hotel's top floor and made his way to room 2008, the penthouse. After being escorted into the suite by the mystery patient's armed guards, he made his way deeper into the series of rooms in search of the man he had been called to treat. On the short walk to room 2012, the master bedroom, he couldn't help but notice that things seemed a bit... off in the penthouse of the Acapulco Princess. The most expensive suite in the hotel on the 20th floor offered spectacular views of the surrounding landscape, yet thick drapes had been drawn over every window and sealed shut with heavy-duty tape. All the doors that gave access to the suite except for one had been boarded shut with two-by-fours mounted to the walls on metal brackets. He passed by what looked like a command center, a small office filled to the brim with papers, communications equipment, filing cabinets, and a paper shredder, which, in the past few days, had seen more than its fair share of action. Entering the bedroom, he came face to face with his patient. The mystery man lay in bed unconscious. He was having a seizure, and his face and neck were twitching uncontrollably. His long white hair reached down his back, and an unkempt beard did much the same down his chest. His fingernails, seemingly not cut in years, were so long that they curled around one another. He had a gaping wound behind his left ear where he had recently ripped off a malignant tumor the size of a quarter. His front teeth had completely rotted away, with the rest of them covered in pus and too loose to chew solid food. Dr. Montemayor pulled back the sheet they covered up to the man's chin and was even more appalled by what he saw. The state of his body could only be described as skeletal. His once-powerful six-foot-three frame now weighed in at less than 100 pounds. Track marks from a 25-year-long addiction to codeine ran down both his arms and legs. His back was covered in bed sores, and his shoulder was injured and covered in deep purple bruises. Yet, for however bad the outside of his body appeared, inside it was far worse. Half a dozen hypodermic needles had broken off inside his arms and legs, the result of chronic self-administration of drugs when he was too weak to physically handle the syringe. He had an ulcer in his stomach and a blockage in his urinary tract. He was suffering from chronic constipation, sometimes going for weeks without a bowel movement, despite at times spending more than 24 hours straight on the toilet. Both his kidneys were failing, he was dangerously dehydrated, and not enough blood was getting to his brain, which Dr. Montemayor diagnosed as the cause of the seizures. Upon seeing the condition of this man, dying in squalor, surrounded by armed guards in the most expensive hotel room in the most expensive hotel in Acapulco, he was quite confounded. It was clear that this man was not lacking in means. Why was he not in a hospital? He would have been forgiven for assuming that this man had not been near a doctor in decades, but indeed he had a staff of three attendant personal physicians. Dr. Montemayor advised one of the aides in the penthouse that he should be taken to a hospital in America, and indeed asked why he was not already in one, to which the aide replied that the man did not like hospitals. The doctor replied that if he was not taken to one, he would die. The man had not need die, but if he stayed here, it was certain that he would.
Dr. Montemayor left the hotel, and after a flurry of calls back and forth from the penthouse, some hours later, it was decided that the old man would be put on a stretcher with oxygen equipment and loaded onto a private jet, where he would be flown to Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas. Though his identity would not become clear to Victor Montemayor until his death was announced in the papers, the decrepit man wasting away in squalor in the penthouse of the Acapulco Princess was none other than Howard Robard Hughes Jr., the world-renowned industrialist, as well as, depending on how his wealth was measured, the richest man on earth. At 11 a.m. on April 5, 1976, the unconscious Hughes was lifted out of bed, placed on a stretcher, and whisked away from the hotel under a veil of secrecy. When the old man and his entourage arrived at the Acapulco airport, they drove out to an isolated private hangar and loaded Hughes and his medical equipment on board a small jet. Half an hour later, the plane was cleared for takeoff and began its ascent over the mountains and valleys of northern Mexico. Howard Hughes had not been back in Texas, the place of his birth, for 38 years. It was fitting that for his final ride, he was at long last returning home. As the plane gained altitude and the flight stretched on, Hughes's body grew weaker and weaker. About an hour after takeoff, his pulse was barely detectable and fading fast. Then, at approximately 1.27 p.m. on April 5, 1976, his body finally gave up. His heart stopped beating. Just as they had crossed the border into Texas, the mysterious life of Howard Hughes had reached its end. If you're a regular listener to this show, then you'll know that I'm not, shall we say, sympathetic to the plights of the rich and powerful. And indeed, as we begin to slowly unravel the complicated tale of Howard Hughes, you'll see that, in many respects, he did not lead a life that elicited sympathy. Yet, this story is still very much a tragedy. Hughes was the beneficiary of every possible material advantage. Beginning from adolescence, he had at his fingertips control of riches unfathomable to any normal person. Throughout his life, he used this vast financial apparatus to enable the very worst of his obsessive tendencies, creating an intricate and impenetrable system of aides and messengers that catered to his every whim and ensured his total isolation from the outside world. Eventually, this beast of Hughes's creation would grow out of his own control, and where he had once been the administrator of his own personal asylum, he would now be its sole inmate. His deteriorating mental state, exacerbated by a staggering amount of drug use and the enabling behaviors of his aides, ensured that, in the years preceding his death, Howard Hughes was a husk of the man he once was. Most of the time not lucid and completely unable to make rational decisions, Hughes' executives still treated him as though he was able to give consent and instruction. An examination of Hughes's final years would lead one expert to say that his condition resembled, quote, a chronic psychotic patient in the very worst of mental hospitals, that he was, quote, incapable of caring for himself without assistance and was not able to make informed decisions. The old man lived in inhumanly filthy conditions. He would sleep for months in soiled sheets, collecting his urine in jars and storing them in the closet. He would go for weeks without eating, days without drinking, and injected on a daily basis for a quarter of a century enough codeine to kill an average man. 
In his almost vegetative state, an army of his executives descended on Hughes like vultures, swindling him out of hundreds of millions of dollars that he never even noticed was missing. By the time he died in 1976, Hughes had not seen the outside world in 15 years. His living conditions had so contorted his body that coroners in Houston were forced to get the FBI to identify him by fingerprint. Dental identification was impossible, as most of his teeth had rotted out of his head. One of the richest men in the world, commander of tens of thousands of employees, billions of dollars in assets, and an army of personal aides, had died of neglect. In this episode, I want to take a deep dive into the colorful life of Howard Hughes. Strap in, this is going to be a long one. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 130, The Howard Hughes Blues. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. And now, let's dig in. Howard Robard Hughes Jr. was born on Christmas Eve 1905 in Houston, Texas, to his mother, Aline Stone Gano, and his father, the appropriately named Howard Robard Hughes Sr. And although the bulk of this story is about Howard Jr., known as a child as Sonny, in order to know the genesis of his vast wealth, we first have to talk about his father, whose business practices in the oil fields of Texas would lay the foundation for what would become one of the largest personal fortunes in history. Howard Hughes Sr. was born on September 9, 1869, in Lancaster, Missouri, to Gene Summerlin and Felix Hughes, a prominent lawyer who would later become a judge and mayor of Keokuk, Iowa. As a child, he displayed a marked skill in disassembling and building anew complex mechanisms and machines, but showed little appetite for formal education, and indeed became rambunctious and rowdy in his adolescence, in the process gaining a rather poor reputation through the Hughes' Iowa community. Howard Sr. bounced in and out of school, attending Harvard for a short time with the intent to become a lawyer before dropping out and returning to Iowa. Deciding instead that he did not want to attend law school, he simply took the Iowa bar exam and passed, joining the law practice of his father, Felix. It seems, though, that Howard showed the law the same level of commitment that he showed his studies, and within a year, he and the firm would part ways. Now free from the demands of the practice, Howard Sr. decided that his new venture would be beneath the earth. He claimed that he was going to find his fortune under the soil. This, ultimately, was not quite fated to be. While puttering around silver, zinc, and lead mines in the West and Midwest, Howard did not find his fortune, but he did learn a thing or two about drilling through rock, which will be important later. It was in one of these mines that, in January 1901, word first reached him about the discovery of oil at Spindletop, a jet of crude so powerful that it reached 150 feet in the air and lasted for nine days. It marked the beginning of the Texas oil boom, and like many hundreds of thousands of others, Howard Hughes Sr. was called to Texas by the allure of vast riches lying in wait just beneath the surface of the earth. Like many wildcatters in the early days of the boom, it seemed that Hughes's fortunes fluctuated wildly on a practically daily basis. 
though in these early years he made little long-term financial gains and survived largely thanks to the generosity of his father, he did succeed in courting Eileen Stone Gano, daughter of a prominent Dallas family, and they were married on May 24, 1904. After the honeymoon, the couple settled in a small house at 1404 Crawford Street in Houston, where on Christmas Eve 1905, Howard Jr. was born. Only 22 years old at the time, Aline Gano almost did not survive the birth, and she was advised not to have any more children. About a year later, the family moved to Louisiana so that Howard's father, along with his partner, Walter Sharp, could pursue a series of allegedly massive oil deposits near Shreveport. Though these huge strikes did not materialize, the Hughes family managed to get by. But in the field, things were becoming increasingly frustrating. Through his time in the mines, Howard Sr. had come to know quite a lot about cable drilling, which is also used in the drilling of oil wells. To Hughes and many others, the conditions afforded by even the most current of drilling tools was unacceptable. The most widespread drill bit at the time was what's called a fishtail bit, which is like Imagine if you took a flat square piece of metal with a bifurcation at the end and then grabbed the end of it and twisted it 45 degrees so it kind of forms a helix. The total cutting area of a bit such as that is very small. It's really just the very bottom of the fishtail, essentially a single blade that's doing the cutting. As you might be able to imagine, such a drill would be completely unable to cut through solid rock or even tightly compacted sand and clay. In the case of rock formations, which were common among the Louisiana oil fields, crews on the drilling rig would have to try and break through the rock by replacing the fishtail bit with a hammer that would then be dropped over and over down the shaft. Unsurprisingly, such a process often did not work, and even if it did, it could take weeks to break through a single deposit. With current technology, hitting rock could very easily stop you in your tracks and keep you there for good. Hughes devoted his mechanical mind, so adept as a child at disassembling complex machines, towards designing a new drill bit that would eliminate this problem. Now, how much of a role both Hughes and his partner Sharp played in the creation of the resulting bit is an element of debate. Sharp's widow claimed that he had contributed to the design, but Hughes was the only name included on the patent paperwork. Indeed, as if paperwork proves anything, the true origins of what would ultimately come to be known as the Hughes rock bit may not even lie with Hughes. As he tells it, one night in 1908, Granville Humison, a young man from Mississippi working in the oil fields around Shreveport, met Hughes at a bar and showed him a wooden model that he had constructed of a potential new type of drill. It consisted of two large cone-shaped bits that rotated simultaneously. Such a design could potentially shear through rock much easier, not to mention vastly increase the proportion of the bit's surface area that was devoted to cutting. Humison only seems to have had a faint grasp of this, as he sold his design to Hughes for $150 and proceeded to immediately spend 50 of it buying rounds of drinks for everyone at the bar. By the fall of 1908, Hughes would attempt to patent his rock bit consisting of a generally similar design, making for a total of 166 cutting edges, a far cry over the fishtail's one. 
1933, Hughes engineers would add a third cutting cone to the bit, in the process solidifying their monopoly of the oil bit market, but that is yet to come. In the summer of 1909, Sharp and Hughes cast a prototype of the rock bit and deployed it for a test in the Shreveport fields. While it could take weeks to hammer through a band of rock of any thickness, over the course of the next 11 hours, the Hughes rock bit would chew through 14 feet of solid rock. The astonished spectators gave the thing a nickname Hughes would relish and use with pride. The Rock Eater. By the summer of 1909, the patent on the rock bit would be granted, shepherded through the process faster than usual due to the help of the well-connected Judge Felix Hughes. With this patent, the primacy of the Hughes rock bit was all but assured. It was, of course, the best drill bit commercially available at the time, but it was also not particularly unique. People had experimented with cone cutters before Hughes, he was just the one to get the patent. With this newfound security, Hughes would go on to sue anyone else developing a bit of a similar design, frightening off essentially all competition and soon establishing a monopoly on the oil bit industry that would last until the 1950s. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Back in 1909, things are starting to look up. Howard Sr. and his partner incorporated the Sharp Hughes Tool Company to manufacture the bit, and interest started to come in from the oil fields of Texas and California. The Hughes family was well on the trajectory to wealth, and so Howard relocated them all to an upscale part of Houston and sent young Howard Jr. to Prosso's Academy, an elite school for the children of the city's upper class. Now that I mention it, we should probably check in on young Howard. From his father, Howard Jr. had inherited a seemingly innate ability to understand machines. In his later years, he would say that one of the proudest moments of his life was when, as a young boy, he built a working radio out of materials he had salvaged from the Hughes family doorbell. He learned how to construct and operate ham radio equipment and built with his father one of the first motorcycles in Houston by affixing a small motor to a regular bicycle. In these ways and more, Howard was very much his father's son. He had also inherited his disinterest for formal education. Though the best schooling was made available to him, first Prosso's in Houston, then South End Junior High School, then Fessenden, which he attended until 1921, and finally Thatcher in California, which he attended for a year and a half, Howard never especially excelled at his studies. In the case of his admission to Thatcher, by the time his father sought to have him enrolled, all of the spots were already full, so Howard Sr. offered to fund an expansion to the school's dormitories. It's not known if Thatcher responded to or accepted this offer, but young Howard was indeed admitted. It was also during this era of school hopping that he discovered a love for aviation. As the story goes, during his time at Fessenden, which is in Massachusetts, Howard Sr. dropped by and took him to the Harvard-Yale boat races, telling him that he could have anything he wanted if Harvard won. Well, Harvard did win, and it just so happened that on the way to the games, Howard had seen a Curtis seaplane tied up on the river, advertising rides for five dollars. That, he told his father, is what he wanted. Howard Sr. reluctantly agreed, and it was the beginning of a lifelong fascination with aviation that would dramatically shape the course of his life in many ways. It would, in time, become one of the only things that Howard Hughes could love, 
but we're not quite there yet. Indeed, before we get too ahead of ourselves chronologically, I want to go back and further establish the character and personality of Howard Hughes, because in this era, from his childhood in Houston to the end of his first year at Thatcher, we can see the beginnings of some of the habits and attitudes that crop up later in his life in much more extreme ways. Contrary to the brash and aggressive nature of his father's adolescence, Howard was extremely shy and reserved, finding it difficult to make friends and relate to other people. Indeed, his only friend was the son of his father's partner, Dudley Sharp, an outgoing popular boy of Howard's age. In something that I think really speaks to who Howard Hughes the man was, Looking back on the entirety of his life, it becomes clear that Dudley Sharp was perhaps the only person he could ever call a true friend. From his mother, Howard inherited a fear of sickness and germs. Aline smothered her son, making him take mineral oil every night and monitoring his health with an eagle eye. At the first telltale sign of any sickness, he was whisked off to the doctor. Whenever any illness was spreading through Houston, Aline would take Howard and leave for the country. From this, he learned that he could use being sick to elicit sympathy and avoid responsibility, something that will appear again and again throughout his life. Now, I have heard some people say that the origin of Hughes's germophobia came from his seeing a drop of water under a microscope, but I think that just does not hold up. I think the much more apparent answer is that these were obsessive behaviors that were worsened by his declining mental health, but sprang from seeds planted, in this case, by his mother's behavior. This idea is supported by the fact that, in instances during adolescence that Howard is away from his mother, his health issues seem to almost disappear. He didn't spend a single night away from his mother until he was 10, at which point his parents sent him to a place in the Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania called Camp Tidiuscum. It was a nature camp run by one of the founders of the Boy Scouts, where boys would learn to do, well, outdoor things. During these forays to camp, while he still did not have success making friends and was sometimes bullied by the other boys, his health significantly improved. His mother worried about him constantly and would continually write letters to the camp director asking for updates on Howard and word on his health from the camp doctor. So now that we have some more context for the early years of Howard Hughes, let's go back to working through the chronology of his life, because at this point he's only in his late teens, which means we've got more than 50 years to cover. Now earlier, I said that his childhood era came to an end after his first year at Thatcher, but I also said that he attended the school for a year and a half. So what happened at the end of his first year, the spring of 1922? Well, on March 29, 1922, Aline Hughes went to Houston's Baptist Hospital for a minor procedure, the type usually used to remove growths from inside the uterus. They put her under and she never woke up. At the young age of 39, Howard Hughes's mother was dead. To his father, it was a devastating blow, and he immediately sent two telegrams out to California, one to Howard at Thatcher and the other to his brother Rupert in Los Angeles. He told Howard only that his mother was very ill and that he needed to return home at once, but to his brother, he told the truth asking that he meet Howard Jr. in Los Angeles and put him on a train back to Texas. 
It was here that Rupert delivered the news, and though this devastated young Howard, he showed little in outward signs of grief. One of the only people he had ever been close to was gone, but like all emotions, for Howard Hughes, mourning was an intensely private thing. At the end of the summer, he returned to Thatcher for the fall semester, and his father struggled very openly with his grief over the death of his wife. Houston, the city that was the seat of all his riches, he now avoided like the pox. He was spending more and more time in Los Angeles and other parts of California. After all, the sales of the Hughes Rock bit on the West Coast were exceeding sales in Texas. I should mention, in a slight tangent at this point, that the structure of the tool company was very different in 1922 than it was in 1909. On November 18, 1912, Hughes Sr.'s partner, Walter Sharp, who owned half-interest in the Sharp Hughes Tool Company, died, leaving all his stake to his wife, Estelle. The widow, however, found it difficult to control the freewheeling spending habits of Howard Hughes Sr., and two years later sold her stake to Edward Prather, who had been a friend of both Sharp and Hughes. Prather ran into the same issues as Estelle Sharp, and less than a year later, in 1915, he sold his stake to Howard Hughes Sr., who now owned 100%, and changed his name to the Hughes Tool Company. By 1922, the company, sometimes referred to as Toolco, was making profits in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions in modern currency, and although it would not cement its total monopoly until the beginning of the 30s, it was well on its way to market dominance. But anyway, all that is to say that Howard Hughes Sr. was spending some more time on the West Coast. Struggling with bouts of extreme loneliness after the death of Aline, in the spring of 1923, he decided, against the wishes of the headmaster, to pull Howard out of school at Thatcher. The two lived in Los Angeles, along with Howard's aunt, Annette Gano, Aline's sister. About a year later, on January 14, 1924, on one of his exceedingly rare visits to Houston, Howard Hughes Sr. died suddenly of a heart attack. He was in the middle of a meeting at the tool company's corporate offices on the sixth floor of the humble oil building. He was 54 years old. Over the span of just two years, Howard Hughes had lost both his parents to extremely sudden and early deaths. It would exacerbate long-held fears about his own health and mental stability that would find full form in his later years. For now, though, Howard had other things on his mind. His father's will had left him 75% of the shares in the tool company, with the remaining 25% going to Howard Sr.'s parents, Felix and Jean. Before he was even a legal adult, Howard Hughes was a millionaire. His grandparents and other relations, aunts and uncles, his father's brother Rupert, thought that Howard should continue his schooling at Rice University, which he had begun shortly before his father's death, and earn a degree. Indeed, this was one of Howard Sr.'s last wishes, and was written into his will. His son had other ideas, deciding that he instead wanted to drop out of school and take control of the tool company. Almost immediately, Howard instructed the executives of Hughes Tool to start the acquisition process for his grandparents' stake. Felix and Jean did not want to sell, but eventually relented completing the sale of the shares in May 1924, just four months after the death of Howard Sr. 
Howard Hughes now controlled 100% of the tool company and could use it as he wished, but it had come at a cost. Spurning the advice of his family and seizing control over the rest of the company caused a permanent and very bitter rift between him and his father's side of the family. This is perhaps exemplified by a passage in the will of Jean Hughes, who would die four years later in 1928. Quote, I mention the name of my grandson, Howard R. Hughes Jr., to show that I have not forgotten him and that I have purposely not given him anything in this, my last will and testament. Yet, the destruction of human relations meant little to Hughes, a theme which will come up again and again. Instead, he was too focused on the next phase of his plan of total control of his affairs. You see, he was only 18, and at the time, Texas considered 21 to be the legal age of adulthood. There was one potential way out, though. Texas law contained a provision allowing any minor who was at least 19 years old to petition the state to be declared a full legal adult. In the interim period between spring 1924 and his 19th birthday in December, Howard focused all his energies on buttering up the judge that would be overseeing his case, Walter Monteith. He became the judge's golfing partner, whispering assurances in his ear that if he was declared to be an adult, he would immediately matriculate to Princeton, where he would finish his schooling. This, of course, was a lie, but this and other sweet nothings virtually assured that his request would be granted. Indeed, on December 24, 1924, Howard's 19th birthday, he filed his application to Monteith's court, and two days later, it was granted. He could now exercise full authority over both his own life and the Hughes Tool Company. It seemed that engineering drill bits, however, was not where his interests lay. The young Hughes considered the Tool Company to be his, quote, father's monument, that she'd be preserved as if under glass a physical incarnation of Howard Sr.'s accomplishments. Instead, he set his sights on new areas, ones where he could distinguish himself outside of his father's shadow. For Hughes, this new arena would become one of his lifelong obsessions, the movies. But before he stole away to Hollywood, he still had a bit of time remaining in Texas. It was here in 1925 that he met the woman who would become his first wife, Ella Botts Rice, daughter of the wealthy Rice family, founders of Rice University. According to Hughes, it was love at first sight, though Ella was significantly slower to warm to him. Nevertheless, on June 1st, 1925, the couple were married. Howard was 19 and Ella 21. In preparation for the wedding, Hughes wrote his will, the first of many and seemingly the only one that was ever signed. It devoted the majority of his estate to the establishment of Howard Hughes Medical Laboratories, which would study germs and infectious diseases. The idea of a medical foundation would remain a constant in Hughes's life and will crop up in various ways over the rest of this episode. In the fall of 1925, the couple relocated to California, moving into a suite at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles so that Howard could pursue a career in the budding film industry. His first film was a flop made on a shoestring budget that was apparently so bad it was never released. Possibly learning from some of his mistakes, his next film, Everybody's Acting, directed by Marshall Nealon and premiering on November 8, 1926, was both a moderate critical and commercial success. 
It's worth noting that Everybody's Acting is considered a lost film, as no known copies of it survive. Either way, after its positive reception, Hughes seems to more firmly settle into the idea of becoming a producer and filmmaker, evidenced by the fact that he changed the bylaws of a subsidiary of the Hughes Tool Company to allow it to produce both drill bits and films. It was also during this period that Hughes hired a former accountant named Noah Dietrich to manage his financial affairs and run the day-to-day -day business of his film production studio. In time, Dietrich would come to be the unrivaled second-in-command of the vast Hughes empire, but for now, he was just helping him organize his money. Hughes's next film was 1927's Two Arabian Nights, a comedy set in World War I. Directed by Louis Milestone, who Hughes had hired despite him being on a blacklist for breaking a contract with Warner Brothers, the film was a massive critical and box office success in both 1927 and 1928. It also breathed a new life into the career of Louis Milestone, who would go on to direct Of Mice and Men, All Quiet on the Western Front, and Ocean's Eleven. Despite these successes as a producer, Hughes had even greater ambitions in mind. He wanted to make a great epic film, a story of daring aviation exploits in World War I. He would call it Hell's Angels, and he hired Marshall Nealon, who he had worked with on Everybody's Acting, to direct. Though this time, conditions on set were different. While previously Hughes had played little role in the actual artistic element of the film, staying away from the set and rarely interfering with production matters, during the development of Hell's Angels, Hughes was a constant presence, seemingly always in the midst of nitpicking some tiny detail about the direction. The situation became so frustrating for Nealon that he quit, telling Hughes that if he knew so much, he should direct it himself. It was what he had been waiting to hear, and Hughes immediately assumed the role. To say that the production of Hell's Angels under Hughes was troubled, I think would not really convey the magnitude of the problem. Barring behaviors like compulsive handwashing, which he had done since his late teens, the making of this film is one of the first times we can really get a view at the extent of his obsessive tendencies, behaviors that will only worsen with time. Hughes wanted Hell's Angels to be unsurpassed in every respect, the biggest, most impressive film epic ever made. To this end, he assembled a fleet of 88 World War I fighters and bombers to produce the aerial sequences. It was, at the time, the world's largest private air force. He had a very particular vision for filming in the air. The planes had to be set against large, fluffy white clouds so as to convey a sense of speed. Not only did Hughes employ a network of meteorologists across California to pinpoint the times and locations of the best cloud coverage, but when the required clouds were present, he ordered reshoot after reshoot after reshoot, because something wasn't quite perfect. Some scenes, complex scenes involving aerial photography and simulated combat, were reshot over 100 times. He thought nothing of scrapping tens of thousands of feet of film and ordering it anew. To make matters worse for the editors, as production stretched on into 1928 and 1929, Hughes saw the prospect of releasing a silent film to be more and more embarrassing. The first talkie had premiered two years prior in 1927, and he was convinced that it was the future of film.
To that end, he reordered all of the film's dialogue scenes to be reshot for sound. This necessitated that the film's current female league, Greta Nissen, who had a strong Norwegian accent, be replaced by a young Jean Harlow. The film would be the start of her career as she went on to become one of the most famous film stars of the 1930s. By the end of production, Hell's Angels, which had to fit on 15,000 feet of film, would be spread across approximately two and a half million. The total cost came in at $3.8 million, around $64 million today. Three pilots would die during filming, and Hughes would have the first of many plane crashes, crushing his cheekbone and landing him in the hospital. Hughes had become so obsessed with the production, as well as philandering around with other women, that in 1928, Ella Rice filed for divorce and left for Texas. Hughes had lost much during and as a result of its production. The final result is, unfortunately, not a very good movie. Hughes masked this fact with one of his most enduring skills, promotion. The extended production time and the secrecy with which it was conducted, as well as the extravagance of the lead-up to the premiere and the film's debut on May 27, 1930, generated a great amount of interest in the war epic. The consensus seemed to be that, while the air combat scenes were fantastic, there were far too few of them. The story was dull and uninspired, the acting was wooden, and the only redeeming scenes were the ones with Jean Harlow. Nevertheless, even though Hell's Angels ended up being a mediocre movie, it was very important to the mythos that Hughes was building around himself that it be remembered as a massive success. To that end, he publicly claimed that the film, on top of the astronomical production costs, had managed to profit an almost equally massive $2 million. In fact, almost the opposite was true. Hell's Angels had lost $1.5 million. After the faux success of his war epic, Hughes brought back Milestone and others to produce a spate of new films that he largely did not meddle in. The most famous of this bunch is 1932's Scarface, directed by Howard Hawks. A lurid tale of crime mirroring the story of Al Capone, following the rise and precipitous fall of a Chicago gangster named Tony Camonte. The film's depiction of violence, bootlegging, and sexuality landed it in hot water with Hollywood's censoring body, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, who refused to issue their seal of approval and demanded massive changes to the story. Hughes begrudgingly complied. Yet, even with these accommodations, the film's premiere in Manhattan was shut down by the New York Board of Censors. Infuriated, Hughes lodged lawsuits against the censoring bodies and won, proceeding to show the original uncut version of the film in theaters across the country. Scarface was a massive critical and commercial success, and his very public fight for the right to screen it earned Hughes much notoriety across the country, but especially in Los Angeles. Riding high on his latest success, it would seem logical for Hughes to keep producing movies to greater and greater acclaim, but it was difficult for him to focus on any one thing for that long. In 1932, towards the end of his fight for Scarface, Hughes turned his attention once more to aviation. It was that year that Hughes made a special backroom deal with the Department of Commerce to obtain a Boeing military pursuit plane. 
he was the only civilian in the country that was allowed to own such an aircraft. Over the next three years, his team of engineers and designers would completely overhaul the plane, turning it from a standard biplane into a racer the likes of which the world had never seen. A retractable landing gear, rivets flush with its aluminum skin so as to reduce drag, the removal of the top wings, transforming the biplane into a cantilever monoplane, the installation of a powerful new engine, his devotion to the perfection of what would become known as the Hughes H-1 necessitated that he establish the Hughes Aircraft Company to organize expenses. By the time of his death, Hughes Aircraft would be in the top 10 military contractors in the United States, posting annual revenues in the billions of dollars. For now, though, it was just a small, cordoned-off portion of a hangar at the Burbank Airport. To direct the retrofitting work on the H-1, Hughes hired Glenn Odenkirk, an aeronautical engineer he had met while working on Hell's Angels, and someone who would serve as a close advisor to Hughes on engineering matters in the years to come. It was also at this time that Hughes purchased 7000 Romaine Street, an unassuming two-story building on a quiet street in Hollywood. Romaine Street would come to be the unquestioned locus of all his operations. All information that went to Hughes would be filtered through an arcane and impenetrable series of messengers and phone operators, laying the groundwork for the system that would allow him to live in near-total isolation for decades. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Hughes had ordered the construction of the H-1 with the goal of breaking the world airspeed record, and his insistence on being the plane's test pilot, potentially putting him in a grave amount of danger, raised quite the concern among the old tool company executives in Houston. They knew that if Hughes died, especially under the terms of his 1925 will, then Toolco would be doomed essentially forced into liquidation by Texas's 75% inheritance tax. This pressure from the executive team for Hughes to assume a safer role only irritated him, and similarly to his aunts and uncles pressuring him to finish his schooling at Rice, Howard decided that under no circumstances would he listen to them. He would remain the test pilot for the H-1, end of story. As a matter of fact, in order to punish the insubordination of the Houston team, Hughes sent Noah Dietrich, who had been steadily gaining power as operations in California had expanded, to Houston in order to keep an eye on the tool company. Dietrich would use this as an excuse to remove the last barriers to his total consolidation of power within the Empire, and over the course of the next few months, forced out the executives that had been badgering Hughes and challenging his authority. Anyway, the H-1 was scheduled to attempt beating the world speed record on September 13, 1935. With Hughes at the controls and Amelia Earhart looking on as a judge, Hughes was set to take off from Martin Field, a small airport in Orange County, and do multiple passes above the runway so that his speed could be measured with special cameras. Hughes was only supposed to make two or three passes of the airfield, he made his first three, clocking in at blistering speeds of 355, 339, and 351 miles an hour. At this point, he had already set the speed record, but he kept flying, pass after pass after pass. 340, 350, 354, 351, Hughes was enjoying himself so much that he paid no attention to his fuel gauge, which was straddling empty.
just as the tool company executives had feared. As he began to climb for another pass, the main tanks of the H-1 ran out of fuel, and the engine stalled mid-flight. Hughes could have bailed out and used his emergency parachute, but doing so would have guaranteed that the H-1 would not survive. Instead, he decided to make the best attempt he could to land the plane. Crash landing into a beet field outside Santa Ana, California, Hughes managed to land the racer with little significant damage. He himself stepped out of the cockpit unscathed. As the story goes, when his staff from the airport raced up to the plane to check his condition, they informed Hughes that he had officially set the world speed record at 352 miles per hour. Hughes looked at them and looked at the H-1 lying damaged in the field and covered in red beet stains and said, it'll go faster. Now, before I talk about the other aviation records, while we're on the topic, I think this would be a good time to touch on a theme that you may have already picked up on. For Howard Hughes, perception was more important than reality. We saw this in the public relations spin after the release of Hell's Angels, and we're going to see it over and over again in the rest of this episode. At this point in his life, Hughes, of course, the extreme perfectionist, had a great desire to be successful in his endeavors, but what mattered more is that he was perceived to be a daring, trailblazing success in every respect. The creation of the myth of Howard Hughes was an integral component to his success, and if he didn't have the benefit of his manufactured reputation, many aspects of which were built on deception and misdirection, then his life likely would have taken a very different course. One small example of this kind of behavior, something that I think shows how critically Hughes fixated on tiny details that supported his larger image, can be seen in what he did about his pilot's license number. You see, it was critical for Hughes that he be perceived as an aviation pioneer, someone who had an indelible impact on the course of aviation history, and only with the setting of his first world speed record, not to mention the accolades to come, one could argue that he had already accomplished his goal. There was, however, one critical problem for Hughes. His pilot's license number was 4,223. How could he be known as a pioneering early aviator with such a high license number? Charles Lindbergh, on whose records he would soon set his sights, had license number 69. To Hughes, the magnitude between the two numbers seemed to be an indicator of shame, that he had somehow been late to the game and would thus be incapable of leaving his mark on the industry. Accordingly, he pressured the Department of Commerce, which in those days issued pilot's licenses, to give him a lower number. It worked, and in 1932 his license number was changed from 4,223 to 374. The following year, it was lowered again, to 80, 11 slots away from Lindbergh, and much more befitting of the image Hughes was cultivating for himself. Over the next few years, Hughes would continue to build a name for himself as an aircraft designer and test pilot, though he only contributed to the design of his planes at a very high level. He entered into a number of air races and won, showing off the prowess of his engineering team, growing his reputation, and securely settling into his role as a pilot, becoming more comfortable setting his sights on larger and larger records. 
The first of these record-breaking attempts would come in January 1936, when Hughes would attempt to break the transcontinental speed record, which at that point was held by Roscoe Turner, a flamboyant early aviator known as the Flying Circus, due to his pet, Gilmore the Lion Cub. For this flight, though, Hughes would not pilot the H-1, even though he had ordered the creation of a special set of wings that could be used on cross-country flights. Instead, he rented a Northrop Gamma, a powerful single-seat aircraft owned by Jacqueline Cochran, who in 1953 would become the first woman to break the sound barrier. Cochran was reluctant to rent her aircraft to Hughes, as she herself had expressed a desire to fly it across the country and set the new speed record. But times were tough, and Hughes's alluring financial offers eventually persuaded her. At 12.15 p.m. on January 13, 1936, Hughes lifted off from Burbank Field in Cochrane's Gamma. Due to malfunctions in his equipment, he had to navigate his way across the country entirely by eyesight, identifying visual landmarks in a technique called dead reckoning. Eventually, nine hours and 27 minutes later, Hughes landed in Newark, New Jersey, in the process setting the new speed record for a transcontinental flight. The victory, though, Hughes felt, was not total. Sure, he had set the record, but it had not been the domination that he had hoped. Hughes had only shaved half an hour off of Roscoe Turner's time, who indeed had stopped once during his flight to refuel. In terms of establishing his unquestioned primacy as a pioneer of aviation, this new record simply would not do. Hughes had to go faster. He ordered his team at Hughes Aircraft to begin the process of once more remodeling the H-1, outfitting it with a host of new bits of technology that would supposedly help him crush all previous records. The craft would be filled with a number of new features, including an enclosed cockpit with an oxygen system, allowing Hughes to fly at considerably higher altitudes. At 12.15 a.m. on January 19, 1937, Hughes once again took off from Burbank Airport, intending to set the transcontinental record. In the middle of his flight, at an altitude of almost 20,000 feet, the H-1's oxygen system failed, and almost immediately Hughes began to fall prey to oxygen deprivation, losing control of his arms and legs, his vision slowly fading as he drifted towards unconsciousness. Unless he took drastic action in the next few seconds, Howard Hughes would die. Using all the meager strength he could muster, Hughes pushed the craft into a dive, screaming at the top of his lungs so as to equalize the pressure in his head. After losing a few thousand feet in altitude, he regained control of his faculties and resumed piloting the plane. Despite living through five plane crashes of varying severity, Hughes would claim that this was the only time he really felt he was in danger behind the controls of an aircraft. The rest of the flight was uneventful, and at 12.42 p.m., seven hours and 28 minutes after takeoff, he arrived in Newark, beating his old record by a full two hours. The record would stand for seven years, being broken in April 1944 by the first production model of an advanced new plane called the Lockheed Constellation. The pilots were none other than the president of Transcontinental and Western Airlines, Jack Fry, and TWA's largest shareholder, Howard Hughes. 
The final and most impressive of the aviation records came in 1938, as Hughes planned to take the record for the fastest flight around the world. The current record was held by American pilot Wiley Post, who in 1933 had circumnavigated the globe in seven and a half days. Post, along with famed comedian Will Rogers, would die two years later in 1935 in an attempt to once more upstage the record. Hughes would fly a heavily modified Lockheed 14 Super Electra, the same plane that Amelia Earhart had disappeared in only one year prior. Well, I guess uh, technically Earhart's plane was a Lockheed Electra 10E, not a Super Electra, so they were not identical planes, but they were pretty close to it. Nevertheless, seeming to make the link in his head, in preparation for his flight, Hughes wrote his second will. After divvying up his estate, he sent the document to the First National Bank of Houston, instructing them not to open it unless Hughes disappeared during his flight and remained missing for three years. The location of this 1938 will would later become critical after Hughes' death. The fight over the Hughes estate will get a lot of attention towards the end of this episode. But for now, we can get some semblance of the fate of the 1938 document. After his death, AIDS discovered a draft of a 1944 telegram to the First National Bank instructing them to break open his safety deposit box and return the will to Hughes. It's unknown if this actually occurred, but in any event, the will was likely destroyed far before Hughes' executives started searching for it in the 1970s. Going back to the flight. On July 10, 1938, Howard Hughes and his flight crew, consisting of co-pilot Harry Connor, navigator Thomas Thurlow, engineer Edward Lund, and radio operator Richard Stoddard, arrived at Floyd Bennett Field in Brooklyn. Thousands of spectators had come to see him off. At the time, it was only known that Hughes would be flying to Paris. He had claimed that he would attempt to beat Lindbergh's New York to Paris record of 33 hours. Little did the crowd know that he had a much more impressive feat in mind, a meticulously planned flight around the globe. At 7.20 p.m. on July 10, 1938, Hughes and his crew lifted off from the tarmac of Floyd Bennett and began their journey around the world. Sixteen hours and 38 minutes later, they were on the ground in Paris. Hughes had more than beat Lindbergh's record, he had flown the same distance fully twice as fast. After an eight-hour delay caused by malfunctioning machinery, Hughes and his crew departed once more, this time for the Soviet Union, chartering a course for Moscow over 1,500 miles away. After refueling and restocking, they set off first for Omsk, Siberia, then Yakutsk, an isolated industrial city near the Kamchatka Peninsula. It was the last stop before returning to American soil, and at 3 p.m. the next day, July 13th, they landed in Fairbanks, Alaska, the home stretch. Next came refueling in Minneapolis, then a straight shot back to New York. At 2.37 p.m. on July 14th, the Lockheed touched down in Brooklyn. Wiley Post's 1933 record had been seven and a half days. Hughes had done it in three days, 19 hours, and 17 minutes. It was the total victory he had been looking for, and the spectacle had turned Hughes into an international celebrity. 
He was now one of the most, if not the most, famous people in the United States. Back at Floyd Bennett, thousands of people gathered around his plane. When he could finally get out, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia brought the exhausted Hughes up on stage and showered him with effusive praise. When the little mayor invited Hughes up to the microphone, after struggling greatly to summon the energy, Hughes, who had spent the last four days in a cockpit and had not been able to bathe for a week, could only muster the words, I am ever so much honored. Thank you very much. The following day, Hughes and his crew were given honors at New York City Hall and taken on a ticker tape parade down Broadway. Though he had certainly done something worthy of attention, Hughes did not seem to enjoy being in the spotlight. His massive newfound fame seems to coincide with an increase in his general anxiety and detachment from other people. Yet, like his grief at the death of his parents, Hughes was adept at keeping this to himself. Over the course of the next week, he traveled to both Chicago and Washington, D.C. for honors, ceremonies, parades, and great general fanfare. On July 30th, 1938, Hughes would make the last stop in his cross-country tour. For him, it would certainly be the most difficult. After 13 years, Howard Hughes was coming back to Houston. To welcome him home, over 250,000 people crowded into the streets, a figure that at the time represented a full 75% of Houston's population. The city changed the name of Houston Municipal Airport to Howard Hughes Airport in preparation for his arrival. If any of these celebrations for Hughes was extravagant, it was Houston's. Not only was there a massive turnout to see him, parades held in celebration, but massive banquets were hosted in the Rice Hotel, and he was given honors by the governor of Texas. He saw family he had not seen in years, his mother's sisters Annette Loomis and Martha Houston. He spoke with acquaintances whom he would later remark he never imagined he would see again. Perhaps this was uncomfortable for Howard Hughes, as the next day, July 31st, 1938, when he took off from Howard Hughes Airport bound for California, it would be the last time he returned to Houston for 38 years. The next time he would come to his hometown, Howard Hughes would lay dead in the belly of a private jet. After his 1938 flight, the record-setting flight days of Howard Hughes were behind him. As he returned to California, he envisioned a new era beginning, Howard Hughes, the defense contractor. He already had his company, Hughes Aircraft, which had designed all his racing planes, and production of American aircraft was beginning to increase rapidly as war in Europe seemed just over the horizon. This would be the perfect opportunity for Hughes, famed aviator, to directly translate his powerful aircraft-associated reputation into further prestige and financial gain. Hughes envisioned that the vehicle for this massive new success would be a plane of his own imagination, a lightweight bomber with a crew of five made entirely out of molded and bonded plywood, manufactured through a new process called Duramold. He called it the D-2, and although such a design was incredibly experimental, after all, no plane of even a remotely similar design existed, Hughes promised that the plywood construction would guarantee superior speed, range, and performance to any comparable existing planes in production. 
Again, we see Hughes the promoter, where what is promised won't align with what's delivered. Hughes designed the D2 with the strategy that he would build whatever he wanted, and the resulting aircraft would be so astoundingly performant and impressive that the army would essentially give him a contract on the spot. With his imminent success in mind, Hughes began acquiring land and constructing facilities in Culver City, California. Hughes Aircraft, which was still a subsidiary of Toolco, and which all its life had run essentially as an artisan workshop directly accountable to the often flighty and unavailable Hughes, was now housed in a brand new 60,000-foot state-of-the-art facility. It was serviced by a 9,000-foot runway, the largest private airstrip in the world. Yet, even though the Hughes facilities were not lacking for any technical or scientific luxury, they were lacking in any kind of management. Like I said, Hughes aircraft was structured so that everyone reported directly to Howard Hughes, who in turn gave all the instruction. Now, this kind of structure is fine with a small group of employees working relatively autonomously on a single, reasonably sized project, like modifying the H-1 racer or outfitting extra radios into Hughes' cross-country planes. If Hughes were unavailable for some days or weeks doing one thing or another, previously engineers at Hughes Aircraft could simply work on their own initiative, as Hughes often gave broad technical and performance requirements. In the production of the D-2, which used the new, unfamiliar Duramold process, constructing aircraft required a level of coordination and industrialization that was not possible within the current organizational structure of the company. Not to mention that the D-2's design was far more complex than anything the engineers had previously produced. Now, when Hughes would be gone for weeks at a time, as he often was, his absence would create massive problems, essentially freezing the project in its tracks. As the production on the D-2 stagnated and Hughes aircraft began to be an even more significant drain on profits from the tool company, Hughes sent in Noah Dietrich to convince the government to purchase the plane. Hughes, who had angered the army by drumming up publicity for his plane and then refusing to let them see it, had kept the employees working on the plane sworn under secrecy. So little was known about its design that the army told Dietrich that they could not commit to anything before seeing the aircraft's blueprints. When a group of Hughes engineers brought them up the following day, the army quickly realized that the plane Hughes had intentionally not built to their specifications was not built to their specifications. Not only did the army oppose on principle of design the use of wooden planes, but many of their mechanical needs, a heavy-duty landing gear, a bulletproof windscreen, were not met at all. The plane did not have sufficient armaments, and the army found that if they added them, the craft would be too heavy to fly effectively, if at all. The army rejected Hughes's design, and in a rebuke of his management style, said of Hughes' aircraft, quote, it is the opinion of this office that this plant is a hobby of the management, that the present project now being engineered is a waste of time, and the facilities, both in engineering personnel and equipment, are not being used to the full advantage in this emergency. The Air Corps should discontinue any further aircraft projects with this organization. Ouch. 
Hughes made further efforts to secure a purchase of the D2 by using his political contacts to attempt to influence President Roosevelt, but without any luck. It was the end of the line for the D2. Howard Hughes' first outing as a defense contractor had ended in failure. It was the summer of 1942, and in just a few weeks, he would cross paths with a West Coast shipbuilder who would lead Hughes into his most famous folly. But before that, we can take a little break from aviation because I do think that it's important to mention one of the big reasons that Hughes was often so absent from operations in Culver City, as again, it's something that really speaks to an element of Hughes' personality. A critic once described Howard Hughes' approach to filmmaking as, quote, light on philosophy, heavy on action and sex. And in no case is that clearer than in his direction and production of the 1943 Jane Russell vehicle, The Outlaw. A schlocky western tale, the story of the film is largely incidental, but what does matter is that it provided ample excuses to show off Jane Russell's breasts in various revealing situations, reclining in a pile of hay in a light sheer blouse, scantily clad and tied by leather straps between two trees, the list goes on. While sex had most certainly always been an element of other Hughes films, many thought that the almost exploitative lens of the outlaw crossed the line into impropriety. If the film itself was not enough, Hughes once again showed himself as the deft promoter, knowing that the film's financial success was all but assured if he could generate a great controversy. To that end, he had thousands of billboards for The Outlaw put up around the country, each bearing a massive illustration of a suggestively clad Jane Russell. Hughes, indeed, got the controversy he ordered, but it was perhaps not what he wanted. After an intense wave of public reaction from church, civic, and social groups, Hughes had the billboards taken down. Russell would later say that she was very uncomfortable with them. Nevertheless, despite being finished in 1941, when The Outlaw finally premiered in 1946, it was a massive box office success. Despite its critical panning and despite the emotional costs incurred by his strategies, Howard Hughes had still won. It was a victory, however, that would ultimately add some tarnish to his reputation, as many people did not perceive his fight to release the outlaw in the same way as his previously extremely popular fight to release Scarface. 1946 would be much less than sunshine and rainbows for Howard Hughes, but before that, we need to get back to the summer of 1942. Henry John Kaiser was, like Hughes, seen as a miracle worker, an industrialist whiz. Though Hughes ruled the air, Kaiser controlled the seas. Widely thought of as the father of modern shipbuilding, Henry Kaiser industrialized the process in order to meet the demands of the American military during World War II. The assembly line production of his Liberty ships brought down the average time needed to build a vessel from 355 days to only 48. It was now, after seemingly having already performed one miracle, that Henry Kaiser proposed another. 
Though indeed his west coast yards were pumping out ships faster than ever before, at the rate German U-boats were destroying American merchant vessels in the Atlantic, demand would soon outstrip his production capabilities. However, there was a solution, and Kaiser knew exactly what it was. He would design and build a series of massive air transport planes, flying boats, they could take all the cargo needed over to England, all while completely circumventing the U-boats, with the added bonus of not being bound to seaports for destinations. A strong air force consisting of such planes would allow the United States to project its power globally, being able to land troops and supplies almost anywhere in the world in a few hours' notice. In short, these planes would win the war. There was uh, one problem, though. Henry Kaiser knew absolutely nothing about planes. Those who were knowledgeable in the field of aviation knew that such a plane would be extremely infeasible, if not impossible, to build, not to mention on an industrial scale. Kaiser had promised to build a hundred of them. To the American people, the flaws in the plan were not as obvious. Plus, Kaiser had just finished doing something that was previously thought to be impossible, What's to say he couldn't do it again? If it isn't clear at this point, Kaiser also shared a skill for promotion. Despite widespread professional doubt about the possibility of the project, when Kaiser came into Washington, D.C. on July 30, 1942, he left with a tentative government commitment to build three of his flying boats. He had his commitment, but Kaiser still lacked any connections to the aerospace world. That would all change when he got a tip that Howard Hughes was employing a staff of 200 engineers at his massive Culver City plant, and they were just finishing construction on a secret government airplane, the D-2. It seemed to be a match made in heaven, and Kaiser dispatched men to meet with Hughes about the flying boat proposal. They were unsuccessful in finding him. Unknown to anyone but his closest aides from Romaine Street, after the failure of the D-2 project was evident, Hughes became sick with a very severe case of pneumonia. It would be almost a month until he got in contact with Kaiser, who visited Hughes in San Francisco to convince him of the project. For his flaws, Hughes was certainly knowledgeable about aircraft specifications and aeronautics, and he was very skeptical that a seaplane of such a size could be built at all, especially not in the time that Kaiser had promised the first of the three finished in only ten months. Eventually, though, Hughes fell victim to Kaiser the promoter and agreed to build the plane, but only if Hughes was given total control over its design. Kaiser eagerly agreed. It was a mistake he would come to regret. Almost immediately after agreeing to take part in the collaboration, Hughes began to realize the difficulty of the situation he had placed himself in. He had to build something that might not be possible in a time that definitely wasn't. Hughes estimated that it would take him at least two years to build such a craft. In fact, it would end up taking twice that long. Despite his serious and justified reservations about the project, for some reason Hughes still went forward with it, signing the contract with Kaiser on November 16, 1942. Once production had ended for the D-2, workers began to shift towards what would become known officially as the H-4 Hercules and unofficially as the Spruce Goose.
Hughes would fly into a rage whenever he earned the nickname. As soon as progress started on the Hercules, the managerial problems at Hughes Aircraft once more became glaringly apparent, even more so since the flying boat was orders of magnitude more complex than the D-2, which had already been an engineering nightmare. To combat this, Hughes named Glenn Odenkirk, his longtime employee, as the general manager of the aircraft company. But in a move that we will see many times more over the coming years, Hughes didn't actually give Odenkirk any power to change anything about the way the company functioned. He couldn't even hire or fire anyone, which was sorely necessary, as those that Hughes had placed in power most of the time knew absolutely nothing about planes they did know how to follow orders. Unsurprisingly, progress on the Hercules had stopped before it ever really started. The only thing the Hughes team had managed to do was build a massive wooden hangar to house their massive wooden plane, which did not yet exist. Though he only had a deadline of 10 months, four months in, work on the plane itself had not yet started. Throughout his life, and especially as his mental condition began to deteriorate, Hughes would respond to extreme stress or crisis with complete disengagement, ignoring the problem at hand and devoting all his attention to increasingly insignificant minutiae. Such was the problem in the spring of 1943. Hughes ignored his mounting crises in Culver City in order to disappear to Lake Mead to fly his Sikorsky seaplane. They were using a study of the aircraft's hull to inform the design of the Hercules, and as pressures mounted, Hughes began to obsessively test the plane, arguing over tiny details in the plans for the Hercules. In 1943, the Army Corps of Engineers claimed possession of Hughes' Sikorsky as being necessary for the war effort, and on May 17, 1943, a group of inspectors from the Civil Aeronautics Administration traveled to California to meet with Hughes and assess the condition of the craft. Before they could take possession of the plane, they needed to perform some tests on its ability to land in water. Hughes suggested that the three of them fly to nearby Lake Mead for some landings, and with Hughes behind the controls, the group took off for Nevada. In the plane with him were Charles von Rosenberg and William Klein from the Civil Aeronautics Administration, and Gene Blanford and Richard Felt from Hughes' own engineering team. The group flew out over the surface of the lake, and the CAA inspectors motioned for Hughes to begin his landing out on the water. It was going perfectly, until all at once the craft lurched forward and began to skid sideways, bouncing off the surface of the water, the massive force ripping apart the plane itself. Coming to a rest on the surface of the water and beginning to sink, the injured crew tried their best to escape. All the muscles in von Rosenberg's back had been torn loose. Blanford said that it looked like Richard Felt had been hit in the head with an axe. William Klein's body was never found. Three days later, the chair he had been sitting in floated to the surface. Richard Felt died shortly after arriving at the hospital, and von Rosenberg would suffer from back problems for the rest of his life. Howard Hughes, on the other hand, walked away relatively unscathed. He paid the medical bills for the other crash survivors and hired a squad of Navy divers to raise the plane from the bottom of the lake. He would have the wreck brought back to the Culver City plant, where over the course of the next two years, it would be meticulously rebuilt. 
This had been Howard Hughes's fourth plane crash, but the worst was yet to come. After the crash and recovery, by the time Hughes turned his attention back to the flying boat, nine months of his ten-month allotment had disappeared, and less than a third of the Hercules had been constructed. On top of that, Hughes had already spent over 60% of the plane's budget. In June, month 10 of 10, Hughes finally hired someone to manage the project, an aviation veteran named Edward Byrne. Mistakenly thinking that as manager he had the power of management, Byrne began actually making changes to the organization of the aircraft company. When this brought him into conflict with the employees who had a vested interest in things staying the same, Hughes refused to support Byrne or get involved in any way. And so only two months later, Byrne resigned. With him left a large proportion of the actually competent administrative and technical staff. While it seemed that Hughes' aircraft was in freefall, destined to destroy the so carefully crafted reputation of its founder, Hughes decided that the smart thing to do would be to attempt to make more commitments, to seek further contract work with the armed forces. Hughes had the devious plan of putting lipstick on a pig, retrofitting the failed D-2 into a new plane for a new purpose. Plywood would be replaced with metal, the bomber would become a photo-reconnaissance plane, and the D-2 would become known as the XF-11. Seemingly not learning from Kaiser's mistake of promising 100 flying boats, Hughes wanted a contract for 100 planes, new, unproven designs. And thanks to the power of his political connections, he got it. He was probably thankful, though, to have a contract for any number of new planes, as it seemed that the government was considering cancelling the contract for the Hercules. Thanks to some political maneuvering and heavy lobbying, Hughes softened the blow. The government did indeed cancel the contract for three of the boats, but replaced it with a contract for a single boat at the same total expenditure. Now that there seemed to be some hope of life back in Hughes' aircraft, Howard made another attempt to hire a general manager. This time, he courted Charles Perel, who had been in charge of production at a large aircraft manufacturer, and he was initially very hesitant to join the ranks at Hughes. The company had developed quite a reputation for mismanagement and meddling. Eventually, Perel relented. And though he would only be in his position for just over a year, it would be through his organizational efforts that the XF-11 project and the Hercules were brought to points of near completion. Perel enjoyed a freedom of operation at Hughes that none before him had ever experienced. He could hire, fire, reorganize, he could manage the company how he saw fit. But why was this? Had Howard Hughes had a change of heart? Did he learn that the key to successful project management is delegation? Not at all. Perel was allowed to do what he pleased because, for months, Hughes essentially vanished. In 1944, he suffered the first of his mental breakdowns. The stress from the stagnating Hercules, the departure of several longtime staff members, the closest thing he had to family, and the deterioration of his relationships with his army lobbyist by the summer of 1944 had brought Hughes to the brink of collapse. 
It was during this period that Hughes first worked with Nadine Henley, who would become his personal secretary and a powerful figure in the Hughes empire. He used her to type and type and retype new drafts of his will. It's also during the run-up to his first mental breakdown that Hughes first begins the habit of obsessive memorandum writing. Just one example from the many tens of thousands that he would write over the next decades, here's an excerpt from a pre-breakdown memo instructing aides on his preferred punctuation and verb usage. The memo is titled Notes on Notes. By the time he died, his handwritten memos would total over a hundred thousand pages. Quote, a dash or two shall be used to denote words preceding or following a quotation. Two dashes shall be used to denote the deletion of words when a group of words are quoted, and one dash shall suffice when only one word is quoted. In either case, there shall be a space between the quotation marks, the dash, or dashes, and the quoted word. The word shall shall be used throughout instead of will in the third person singular and plural, making all sentences in the imperative rather than the indicative. The infinitive shall not be used to express a major thought, except as an auxiliary or main verb. No changes shall be made or marks shall be made to the original pencil version. The numbering system set forth in the notes shall not be a criterion for any future numbering system. Hughes rattled off memos such as this with alarming speed and frequency. He began obsessively repeating phrases in both conversation and writing. And then, in the beginning of September 1944, Howard Hughes simply disappeared. After his death, it was determined that he had spent this time bouncing around hotel rooms in Palm Springs, Reno, and Las Vegas. But for four months, nobody in the Hughes organization, even his second-in-command Noah Dietrich, had any idea of his whereabouts. If this disappearance was bad for Hughes, then it was great for Hughes' aircraft. The freedom and flexibility that Perel enjoyed in his new management position allowed him to very quickly imbue some organization into the company. Yet, like Byrne, the general manager who had lasted only 61 days, Perel was also running into significant resistance from the old line Hughes executives. To make matters worse, the XF-11 project, which was supposed to help end World War II with a fleet of 100 high-flying reconnaissance planes, was not anywhere near completion by the time the European theater ended in May 1945. A few weeks after Germany's surrender, the Air Force cancelled the contract for the rest of the planes. While it did maintain that Hughes could finish two copies of the aircraft, just like the Hercules, of which there were also supposed to be 100, there would ultimately end up being only one XF-11. When Hughes returned to the world in the beginning of 1945, he reasserted himself over Hughes' aircraft, though it was then functioning far more efficiently than it had ever under his own direction. This, of course, set him on a collision course with Perel, to whom he had promised not to meddle. By the beginning of 1946, this tension had reached a boiling point, and Hughes fired Perel, the most successful general manager he had ever had, after just 17 months. By April of that year, with World War II beginning to look like a memory, the XF-11 was finally ready for its first major testing. It was far behind schedule and astronomically over budget, but there was at least one functioning plane with a second on the way, more than could be said for the Hercules. 
Mechanical and hydraulic tests continued through the spring, and by the summer of 1946, the craft was ready for its test flight. It was scheduled for July 7th, with Hughes as the pilot, and as he arrived at the Culver City plant and began taxiing the plane up and down the 9,000-foot runway, everything seemed to be going perfectly. The aircraft that had brought him so much trouble, that had been the subject of intense doubt since its very inception, was functioning exactly as Hughes had planned it. He did notice that one of the propellers on the right wing was consuming more oil than it should, but at the time, both Hughes and his engineering team thought little of the issue. The flight itself was scheduled for just after 5 p.m. Hughes would fly the plane for 45 minutes, doing a few loops around the airstrip, and then set the craft back down for analysis and evaluation. Hughes, as usual, had other plans. He took off according to the itinerary, and for the next 45 minutes did the scheduled laps around Culver City. The plane performed beautifully, but as he reached the 45-minute mark, Hughes didn't land the plane. He kept flying around the area for almost an hour and a half. Then, at approximately 6.35 p.m., Hughes felt a massive downward force coming from his right wing. He would later describe it by saying, quote, It felt as if some giant had the right wing of the airplane in his hand and was pushing it back and down. He looked out of the cockpit of his craft, but couldn't identify what was causing the problem. What was clear, though, is that he was in an increasingly dangerous situation. With this dramatic adjustment to the pitch of the plane, the XF-11 was now losing altitude fast. Starting at only about 5,000 feet, Hughes was very quickly losing time to act before the plane crashed to the ground. By the time he made his decision, it was too late for him to be able to glide the plane back to the Culver City field. He would have to try and find an open area in Los Angeles that he could set down the plane with a minimum of damage and death. He aimed for the golf course of the Los Angeles Country Club, but as the XF-11 continued to lose altitude, Hughes realized that he wasn't going to make it that far. Bracing for the inevitable, Hughes missed the fairway by about 300 feet, and the plane crashed into the second floor of a home at 803 North Linden Drive. The impact caused the fuselage to flip over and collide with another house, coming to rest in an alley between the two and immediately bursting into flames. It seemed that Hughes was trapped. The only way to enter or exit the cockpit was through a hatch at the bottom, which was now completely destroyed and blocked by flames. The fire, fueled by over 1,200 gallons of oil and aviation fuel, consumed the plexiglass bubble canopy over the craft's cockpit. It looked like the end for Howard Hughes. He would be cooked alive in the wreckage of his own plane. Luckily for him, William Durkin, a sergeant in the Marines who lived in the neighborhood, heard the crash and rushed to the scene, pulling Hughes, who lay in the cockpit near death, covered in burning clothes, alive from the wreckage. As a reward for saving him, Hughes would later send Durkin $200 a month for the rest of his life. In critical condition, he was brought to Good Samaritan Hospital in Los Angeles, where doctors gave him grim odds of survival. He had fractured nine ribs, injured both lungs, with the left one totally collapsing. His leg was broken and his skull was fractured. His sternum was crushed. Almost his entire body was covered in second and third degree burns, and he had extensive lacerations and abrasions on his head, face, and limbs. 
He had experienced so much force during the crash that his heart had been forced into the other side of his chest. Throughout the entire ordeal, Hughes remained conscious. Miraculously, he did not die, and would in fact live for another 30 years. It was during his stay at the hospital that Hughes first began taking morphine to manage his intense pain. It would be the start of an addiction to painkillers that would spiral out of control and last for the rest of his life. Even though some combination of luck and the miracle of then-modern medicine were the things that saved Hughes from an early grave, he was insistent that his recuperation was actually attributable to something entirely different his compulsive consumption of fresh-squeezed orange juice. Believing that the drink had life-preserving qualities, Hughes would drink the stuff around the clock. Yet, like many things with Howard Hughes, it wasn't so simple as running to the grocery store. He would only drink juice produced from oranges that were cut and squeezed directly in front of him in his hospital room. He would refuse to drink any juice from the hospital's kitchen, as he had no way of knowing for sure that it was fresh, and Hughes believed that exposure to air for over half an hour completely robbed the juice of its miracle properties he so desired. However he managed it, Hughes was discharged from the hospital on August 9, 1946, now sporting a mustache that he used to cover scars on his upper lip. An army investigation determined that the mechanical cause of the crash could be traced back to the oil-hungry right propeller. You see, the props on the XF-11 were laid out in what's called a contra-rotating position, which means that each of the plane's 3,000-horsepower Pratt & Whitney engines turned two props that were placed one in front of the other. Since these propellers spin in opposite directions, such a design conceivably maximizes the efficiency and power of an engine, all while making a craft more stable. It turned out that mid-flight, a gasket on the rear right propeller had blown, causing a loss of oil pressure that reversed the rotational direction on the prop. Now that both sets of blades were spinning in the same direction, it applied a massive rotational force to the wing, essentially making the craft uncontrollable. Yet, even though this was probably seemingly out of Hughes's control, the army still determined that the crash was caused by pilot error. If Hughes had landed the plane at the allotted 45-minute mark, none of this would have happened. As Hughes recovered from his injuries, he told the Army that he would be the test pilot for the second XF-11, now the only one in existence. They full-throatedly rejected such a proposal, though he would make one successful flight in the plane in April 1947. That's probably for the better, though, as he didn't know it yet, but Hughes was shaping up for one of the most critical and public fights of his life. To cover that, we need to set the scene a little bit by talking about TWA. At the end of the 1930s, when Howard Hughes was attempting to pivot from record-setting aviator to defense contractor, he also had another lofty goal in mind. He wanted to run an airline. To that end, in 1939, Hughes began acquiring a stake in transcontinental and western airlines, better known as TWA. Throughout the 40s, as he parlayed his stake into a controlling share, Hughes was determined, like he was with most other things, to make TWA the world's best, most modern, glamorous airline. Yet there was one major problem. T 
TWA couldn't really become a prestigious carrier if they only ran domestic routes. The Civil Aeronautics Administration, which had helped Hughes test his fatal Sikorsky on Lake Mead, orchestrated and distributed the routes for every airline in America. And at the time, only a single company had license to run transatlantic flights, Pan American, the closest thing America has ever come to a designated air carrier. The international travel market brought Pan Am great wealth and notoriety. It had become one of the most powerful companies in the country, with one of the nation's most sophisticated and far-reaching lobbying apparatuses. Howard Hughes wanted a piece of the action. In the spring of 1945, he sued for the right to schedule transatlantic flights on TWA and won. Accordingly, Hughes changed the company's name from Transcontinental and Western Airlines to Transworld Airlines so that he could reflect its new international status without having to repaint the logos on the planes. Now, we will come back to TWA in a bit, because there really is a lot there to cover. But for now, all we need to know is that Hughes's move to open up transatlantic routes for new carriers brought him into direct conflict with the founder of Pan Am, Juan Tripp. Seeking to put Hughes back in his place, Tripp used his company's lobbyists and bought senators to introduce a bill that would have stopped TWA in his tracks. Referred to as the Chosen Instrument Bill, it would have forced all existing companies to surrender non-domestic routes to a newly formed consolidated international carrier, which just so happened to be controlled by Pan Am. The bill didn't pass, as it was a pretty naked attempt to enshrine the power of Pan Am in perpetuity, but Tripp didn't give up that easily. Aside from a new, perhaps more sneakily structured bill, he also needed a new strategy. Thankfully for Pan Am, Hughes had many glaring vulnerabilities. One had just crashed in Beverly Hills, and another sat in pieces inside the world's largest hangar. The contracts for the XF-11 and the Hercules were both issued by the government. The projects themselves had been rife with inefficiency, overspending, and mismanagement. If they could not legislate their way to victory, perhaps Pan Am could pull Hughes in front of a Senate subcommittee to investigate these aircraft, hopefully exposing them to the world as wasteful boondoggles, and in the process destroying the reputation Hughes had spent decades cultivating. That sounded like the perfect plan, plus it presented a golden opportunity for the newly empowered Republicans to embarrass the Democratic government that had issued the Hughes contracts. It was a vortex of factors that seemed destined to sink him, as, after all, the charges of severe mismanagement and financial impropriety that were leveled by the Senate Special Committee to investigate the National Defense Program, colloquially known for its original chairman as the Truman Committee, were true. Hughes had gone massively over budget, misused labor and facilities, and of the 103 total aircraft initially contracted, Hughes had delivered exactly one successful plane. The Kaiser-Hughes hearings, as they were known, began on July 28, 1947 in Washington, D.C. The subcommittee itself was chaired by Maine Senator Ralph Owen Brewster, widely known in political circles to be the handmaiden of Pan American Airlines. And bringing the session to order was Michigan Senator Homer S. Ferguson. 
Hughes, who had raised a great stink about the hearings in newspapers across the country, thanks to his friend William Randolph Hearst, arrived in Washington with a plan. As soon as the hearings had been announced, he sent one of his longtime employees, the promoter John Mayer, who was also a witness before the committee, to South America to document all the instances where Senator Brewster had received gifts, entertainment, and lodging from Pan American. Similar such palm greasing on behalf of Hughes Aircraft, performed by Mayer no less, was also set to be a major component of the hearings. With this ace up his sleeve and a powerful press machine behind him, Hughes was quite the combative witness, making barbed jokes at the senators and running in circles with Ferguson, who was prone to fixating on unimportant lines of questioning. Hughes played off the public in the audience and turned the hearings into a spectacle. From the very first day, there had been over 1,500 people in the viewing gallery watching the proceedings, but as Hughes began to more and more toy with the senators, using his trove of Pan Am intel to direct attacks against Senator Brewster that did indeed exhibit the senator's lack of moral authority, the hearings became a bonanza, televised into homes across the country. Once again, Hughes was playing the role of righteous crusader, and over the course of the hearings that were designed to destroy his reputation, he managed to turn the tables and make the proceedings so embarrassing for the Republican Party that they were pressured to call them off. Senator Ferguson buckled and recessed the committee for three months, and Hughes returned to California, his careful reputation once again burnished as a folk hero, despite the truth of all the charges made by the Senate. The Kaiser-Hughes hearings would be called back to session in November, but they had little steam left, and the committee closed them before the end of the month, having made no lasting impact. You see, when Howard Hughes returned to Los Angeles, he wanted to embarrass the Senate in a very big way. The overspending and mismanagement of the Hercules project in particular was a contentious point, with great hay made over the fact that the plane had never even flown. Well, by 1947, the H-4 Hercules was all but complete in the Culver City hangar. It sat in pieces as it would have to be assembled in a dry dock on the water. And so it was that in the summer and fall of 1947, each massive piece of the Hercules was put on a truck and transported to an equally massive indoor climate-controlled dry dock in Long Beach, California. By October of 1947, it was fully assembled, and an incredible sight to behold. Powered by eight massive engines that drove blades as tall as two-story buildings, its wingspan stretched 320 feet. The wings were so large that a six-foot-tall man could stand upright inside of them. The top of its hull stood 30 feet off the ground, and the tip of its tail 80 feet in the air. It remains, to this day, the largest plane ever constructed. Though it had gone far over its original 10-month deadline, frittered away an $18 million federal allotment and millions of Hughes' own dollars with astounding mismanagement and incompetency, looking at the thing, it seemed that once again, Howard Hughes had done the impossible. Now all he had to do to strike the final blow against the Senate was show the world that the thing could fly. He announced that he would be conducting taxi tests on the flying boat, and on November 2nd, 1947, the engines of the Hercules roared to life in what would become its first and only flight. 
Conducting two passes back and forth across Long Beach Harbor, Hughes brought reporters on board to gaze in awe at the size of his creation, to see in action the very thing every reasonable mind in aviation had considered impossible. After the second taxi, Hughes let off all the reporters except for one, and along with his crew began the final run of the day. Cutting through the water at 90 miles an hour, Hughes eased in the throttle and gently lifted the nose of the Hercules off the surface of the water. He ascended to about 70 feet, flying for about a mile before setting the massive boat back down again. On shore, the spectators were jubilant. There was great speculation that the thing would be physically incapable of flight. Again, it was widely doubted, in the beginning even by Hughes himself, that modern engineering could even bring about a plane of such a size, much less than attain the conditions necessary for flight. Knowing this, Hughes did it anyway, and eventually, almost in spite of himself, succeeded. There are a lot of things to rightly criticize about Howard Hughes, but I do think taking on this impossible task and seeing it to completion is something that is very admirable. To the public, he had performed a miracle, and when they reconvened two weeks later, the flight had taken the last wind out of the sails of the Senate. Hughes would claim that he would be performing more flights on the Hercules starting in the spring of 1948. Instead, the H-4 would sit in a massive, air-conditioned dry dock facility staffed by a crew of 300 technicians for the rest of his life. It would remain one of his most treasured possessions until his final days. In the winter of 1947, Hughes, fresh off his victory before the Senate and heralded by the country as a folk hero and visionary engineer, decided that he once more wanted to shift his attention. Yet again, Howard Hughes was returning to the movies. In the beginning of 1948, he heard rumors that the famed corporate investor Floyd Bostwick Odlum was interested in selling one of his holdings. One of the most respected and successful studios in Hollywood, RKO Pictures. Hughes made contact and thus began a series of lengthy negotiations between two obstinate men who loved to get the better deal. When word of the talks leaked and RKO employees approached Odlum with concerns about Hughes' reputation as a terminally indecisive meddler, Odlum told them that he didn't care and that he was really only in it for the money. Accordingly, on May 10, 1948, Hughes acquired Odlum's 929,020 shares in RKO, 24% of the studio, for $8.8 .8 million, equal to $9.50 per share. In order to quell the already brewing discontent, Hughes promised the RKO staff that he was not interested in interfering with the production of films, and that he did not want to be involved in studio operations. Like all other times he makes this promise, it is one he ultimately cannot keep. Hughes began meddling almost immediately, leading to the departures of major studio staff members who were then not replaced. He followed by firing a full third of the studio's employees. In 1948, for the first time all decade, RKO would lose money, a trend that would continue in 1949. Hughes, however much time he spent obsessing over the minutiae of films under production, could not devote any time to the effective management of the studio. 
Like Hugh's aircraft when it was under his direct control, RKO became disorganized and rudderless, incredibly inefficient. Hughes was too preoccupied with producing a new movie of his own, a schlocky Cold War rehashing of Hell's Angels starring John Wayne called Jet Pilot. As with Hell's Angels, Hughes would shoot tens of thousands of feet of footage and have a practically impossible time cutting it down. Though filming would ultimately wrap in 1951, it would not be until 1957 that Hughes had finally cut it down to size. In the same period, he would sell RKO, get it back, buy 100% of the stock, and then sell the entire company. But the details on that are something that we can weave into our story as it progresses. What's important to know now is that Hughes began meddling with the studio, obsessing over Jet Pilot, over the course of the next few years, turning a profitable and popular studio into a chronic money loser, not only because his mental health was worsening in the wake of his 1944 breakdown, but because he was receding from responsibility as he faced mounting crises on other fronts. Things at Hughes Aircraft were looking bad and getting worse. Hughes was faced with essentially a total revolt of his technical staff and the departure of his key administrators. Why is this? Well, in the end of the 1940s and the beginning of the 50s, Hughes decided that the aircraft division, which had grown profitable as a supplier of military electrical equipment during the Korean War, was making so much money that it would wreak havoc on his personal income taxes. In 1948, Hughes had appointed the retired General Harold George to oversee operations of the aircraft company, and George would transform it from a consistent money loser to a burgeoning defense contractor. Having lost money every year of the 1940s, by 1952, Hughes Aircraft had sales of over $5 million. At this point, the Hughes Aircraft Company was still a wholly owned subsidiary of the Tool Company, of which Howard owned 100%. As a solution to his potential tax woes, Hughes declared that the Culver City facilities would be relocated to Las Vegas. Outwardly, he claimed that it was because the California location was too close to the coast, and thus was vital infrastructure vulnerable to attack. In reality, it was because Nevada did not have an income tax. The employees at Culver City were outraged. Under no circumstances were they going to pack up and move from respectable Southern California to gaudy neon-clad Las Vegas. All the Hughes employees wanted was an expansion and renovation of the Culver City facility, which had long been suffering from years of outdated infrastructure and technology. Hughes refused to approve the renovation and expansion, instead drawing up plans for a massive new plant on 25,000 acres of land outside Las Vegas. It would set the stage for a revolt among the Hughes ranks, as his company's most respected scientists, the ones responsible for developing the technology that was turning Hughes aircraft into a powerhouse, were now threatening to resign. Ignoring the mounting crisis in Culver City, Hughes instead spent the summer and fall of 1950 obsessing over the designs for his new Las Vegas facility. Faced once again with a situation where Hughes needed to take a leadership role to avert disaster, he instead devoted his time changing the tiniest, most insignificant details about the new plant. 
controlling every aspect from the color of the carpet, to the placement of the windows, to the snacks and drinks stocked in the vending machines. While his perfectionist streak had always caused problems for the efficiency of Hugh's operations, in the beginning of the 50s, his concerns started to become more and more trivial. He nursed a rapidly growing fear of being spied on and listened to, and began to conduct official business meetings while driving around the Culver City plant in a private car. If a meeting was ever held inside a building, it would be in the bathroom with the water running. He began to go days and eventually weeks without changing his clothes, and ordered his aides not to touch or look at him. Hughes was receding deeper and deeper into the recesses of his own mind, and although the crisis at Hughes' aircraft was eventually solved when Hughes realized that he was set to lose his key scientists and abandoned the idea of the Vegas move, his mental decline would continue unabated. Once again, Hughes began to obsess over his will. This version of the document, his third, had first been drafted in 1944, and after six years of constant editing, typing, and retyping by his secretary, Nadine Henley, in the fall of 1950, Hughes finally seemed ready to sign. After years of work, Hughes scheduled the signing for the beginning of November at his bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel, where he had lived on and off since 1942. When the day came, Henley brought Hughes the will, which had bloated to over 30 pages and was secured in a massive binder by a special elaborate process of his own design. After sitting in silence for a while, reading through the document he had spent the last six years obsessing on, Hughes announced suddenly and without explanation that he would not sign it, and asked Nadine Henley to return the document to the bank where it had previously been stored. It would remain unsigned in a safety deposit box at Hollywood's Security First National Bank until the hunt for Hughes's last will and testament over 25 years later. I'll only mention this briefly because it's occurring during the same time period, but back at RKO, Hughes's obsessions were driving the studio into the ground. It lost money every year it was under his control, and his constant meddling in production had brought output to a screeching halt. Instead of focusing his energies on fixing the disaster he had created, Hughes preoccupied himself with a popular hobby of the time, rabid anti-communism. He was convinced that secret communists had infiltrated every level of the studio system, and he set out to make RKO the shining example of a reactionary force within Hollywood. To that end, Hughes would happily cooperate with the House Un-American Activities Committee to inform on supposed communists, and in an effort to purge any subversive elements from RKO, he would end up firing 75% of its staff. Hughes, famous for being oblique about his real political beliefs, gives us true insight into the nature of his politics by looking at two of the three major issues that he would become heavily invested in over the course of his life, namely anti-communism and halting racial integration. Going back to RKO, despite being a minority shareholder, only owning 24% of its stock, Hughes had seized control of the studio and run it into the ground. By 1952, RKO was losing millions of dollars, and Hughes started looking to unload the albatross from around his neck. He eventually found potential buyers in a group of less-than-reputable investors from Chicago, 
headed by businessman Ralph Stolkin, who, along with other members of the group, had previously been convicted of fraud and illegal use of the Postal Service. The terms of the deal were so. The Chicago group would buy Hughes's 24% stake in RKO for $7.3 million, but they only had to pay one and a quarter million up front, giving up the rest in installment payments scheduled to occur over the next two years, theoretically ending in 1954. In a sign of how eager Hughes was to offload RKO, he even agreed to give the studio $8 million in financing, more than he had received from the sale of his shares, in order to sweeten the deal. In effect, Hughes was paying the investors to purchase RKO. The sale of the shares was completed and made public in September 1952. The representatives of Hughes resigned from the board of directors and were replaced by those of the new owners. Yet the studio would soon shift back into Howard's hands. When extensive bad publicity about the shady past of RKO's new owners came to light, intense public and industry pressure and scrutiny caused the Chicago group to back out of the sale and resign from the board. Still short quite a few million dollars from his sale price, Hughes had no other option but to recommit to RKO, and in February 1953 became the new chairman of the board. The antics around the sale and Hughes's reacquisition had further damaged the studio, which was now losing very significant amounts of money, and had fallen sharply in every discernible metric. Incensed that someone who owned only 24% of the stock could have soured their investment so badly, a number of minority shareholders began to band together in order to sue Hughes for his negligence, mismanagement, and self-dealing practices. It was in order to fend off these suits that Hughes would eventually buy out 100% of the outstanding shares for $23.5 million on March 31, 1954. A year later, he would completely cut ties with RKO, selling all of his shares to the General Tire Company for $25 million in July 1955. But before we go any further, we need to turn back to 1953 and once more shift our attention to Hughes Aircraft. Only a year after the crisis around the supposed relocation to Las Vegas had subsided, the aircraft division was once more embroiled in conflict. Hughes had been gradually reasserting control over the company since 1951, and General Harold George, who had managed the company since 1948 and was largely responsible for its current success, began to lose more and more of his ability to actually manage Hughes' aircraft. Hughes's constant meddling, chronic unavailability, and unwillingness to deal in good faith with employees had, by 1953, brought the company to the brink of internal war. This presented a problem, as Hughes Aircraft had, by that time, grown into a critical supplier of aviation electronics to the U.S. government. For many things, they were the sole producer. Any disruption at Hughes Aircraft threatened to have far-reaching effects on all kinds of military production. As word leaked out about the conditions in Culver City, concerns grew and grew in Washington. Eventually, on September 18, 1953, the Secretary of the Air Force, Harold Talbot, went out to California to deliver Hughes an ultimatum. He had 90 days to turn things around, or else he would never get another dime in government contracts. 
Indeed, Talbot was considering cancelling all contracts currently held by the company, a move that in one fell swoop would put Hughes Aircraft out of business. In response to these very real and truthful charges of severe mismanagement, Hughes, in classic form, accused the Secretary of the Air Force of being a communist. The way that Howard Hughes deals with this crisis is, I think, very indicative of his character. Did Hughes heed the sobering warnings of the government, buckle down, and sort out his management issues to save the company? No. Instead, he frittered away the entire 90-day period doing absolutely nothing. Well, I guess that isn't entirely true. He did do something. On December 17, 1953, the 90th day of his 90-day deadline, Hughes' lawyers filed paperwork in Delaware that established the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. On the surface, it appeared to be the laboratory to study infectious diseases that had long been an element of Hughes's imagination, and of course he portrayed it as so to the press. In his initial press release in January 1954, he claimed that he was giving it millions of dollars to, quote, combat disease and human suffering, and succeeded once more in burnishing his reputation. Yet, there was an issue. The millions of dollars that Hughes had supposedly given to fund the Institute it didn't actually exist. Instead, it would come from stock of the Hughes Aircraft Company, of which the charity now owned 100%. On December 31st, 1954, the papers were signed. I'd like to read a short passage from Donald Barlett and James Steele's Howard Hughes, His Life and Madness, one of the sources for this episode, because this deal has a lot of steps and it is very complicated and they do a good job of communicating it. Quote, The Hughes Tool Company gave the Howard Hughes Medical Institute the patents, trademarks, goodwill of the company's aircraft division, and all the stock in the new Hughes Aircraft Company. The declared value of the gift was $36,436. The Tool Company then sold to the Medical Institute certain assets of its aircraft division, inventories, receivables on government contracts, for $74,618,038. The Medical Institute, the new Hughes Charity, had no money, so to pay for these assets, the Institute assumed $56,574,738 in liabilities of the Chul Company's aircraft division. The Medical Institute then signed a promissory note to the tool company for the $18,043,300 difference between the assets it bought and the liabilities it assumed. The note ran for three years and carried an annual interest rate of 4%. So, as you can see, Hughes sought to solve his Air Force problem and his tax problem in one. Placing the aircraft company in the custody of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, a fraudulent charity for which he was the sole trustee. The Air Force would not dare cancel the contracts of a company that was the sole source of income for a charity that billed itself as eradicating suffering and disease. Meanwhile, the structure of the charity itself not only allowed Hughes to reduce his personal taxes and those on the tool company by millions of dollars, but the Howard Hughes Medical Institute had been brought into the world $18 million in debt to Howard Hughes, meaning that the man who was supposedly helping heal the sick was actually being paid millions of dollars in interest by his own charity. 
What's more, in a series of self-dealing transactions, the Hughes Tool Company, which owned the Culver City facility where Hughes Aircraft operated, struck a deal to lease the facility to the Medical Institute, who would in turn sublease it to Hughes Aircraft. The aircraft company could then add their new leasing cost onto their bid price for government contracts on parts they exclusively manufactured. It was an audacious con, and Howard Hughes made money at every link of the chain. In its first year of operation of $3.6 million in income, $3 million was paid to Hughes. Only $43,000 was spent on medical research. The head researcher was Dr. Vern Mason, whose only qualification was being Hughes' supplier for an increasing amount of illegal painkillers. Starting after the crash of the XF-11, morphine had soon given way to codeine tablets that he took orally. In time, Mason and a team of other doctors would work with a massive network of aides to procure Hughes illegal prescriptions for Valium, codeine, phenacetin, and empirin. By 1954, Hughes had been addicted to painkillers for 10 years. But anyway, going back to the Medical Institute, it was pretty nakedly a way for Hughes to scam the government and make a lot of money. The IRS thought so too, and in November 1955, denied his request to classify it as a tax-exempt charity. Hughes, for whom he believed the rules did not apply, was outraged that his application should be rejected, and began a spate of palm greasing that would start a thread that would eventually contribute to Watergate. In November 1956, incumbent President Dwight Dean Eisenhower was elected to a second term, along with his trusty stalwart Vice President Richard Nixon. That December, Donald Nixon, the vice president's brother, who had recently tried and failed to maintain a chain of Nixon drive-ins selling Nixon burgers, conspicuously received a $205,000 loan from the Hughes Tool Company. By the spring of 1957, Hughes executives had set up a committee to save Nixon's restaurants, proceeding to let the vice president know what Hughes had done for his brother. As if by magic, on March 1, 1957, the IRS reversed its original ruling and granted the Howard Hughes Medical Institute a tax-exempt status. To talk about the next coming crisis in Howard Hughes's life, arguably his most serious and grave to date, we must return to TWA. The jet age, that glamorous time of the 50s and 60s that would change the face of air travel, was officially kicked off on May 2, 1952, when BOAC, the British airline, introduced passenger jet service with the de Havilland Comet 1. Hughes, who delighted in few things more than selecting and designing planes for TWA, wanted to outfit the carrier in comets, but it's a good thing he didn't. A number of mid-air breakups attributed to excessive frame stress created by the plane's square windows caused the craft to be grounded within a year and redesigned. The jet age would be postponed until the spring of 1954, when Boeing introduced a prototype of the 707. With its introduction, the race was on to become the first airline in the United States to offer comprehensive jet service. Typical in moments that demanded swift action, Hughes stalled. In the fall of 1955, Pan American, United, and American Airlines had all placed orders for the new jets, while Hughes still waffled between his options. Now, at the absolute best, if he ordered them immediately, 
TWA would receive its first 707s months after the competition, severely damaging the airline's ability to compete. Ralph Damon, the president of TWA, was so stressed by the dangerous position Hughes had placed the airline that in December 1955, he died of a heart attack. A full two months later, in February 1956, Hughes finally placed the order with Boeing, 33 707s, costing a total of $186 million, with $39 million due up front. TWA would take delivery of its first new jet three years later in 1959. But even with this massive order from Boeing, the airline was still in an extremely difficult position. The 707s would be used for international and transatlantic flights, but the majority of TWA's routes were domestic. To service those flights, they would need a different medium-range jet. In order to meet this demand, Hughes did not return to Boeing, a company he disliked because he had no influence over its engineering and design decisions. Instead, he approached the airplane manufacturer Convair, which had become a major aerospace player during the Second World War and was struggling desperately to enter the jet age. Convair's vulnerability was perfect for Hughes. He could get the jets he needed all while exerting control over the process and extracting huge concessions from the manufacturer. The resulting plane, the Convair 880, one executive joked that 880 was a reference to the amount of negotiating sessions with Hughes, was a four-engine, medium-range, narrow-body jet. It was perfect for TWA, and in June 1956, Hughes signed a contract for 30 of the planes, costing a total of $126 million. In a sign of how desperate Convair was for the contract, they accommodated Hughes's demand that, after the $26 million down payment, he would not make any progress payments until the planes started rolling off the production line at the end of 1959. On top of this massive expenditure, Hughes also signed a contract to purchase $90 million worth of jet engines from aerospace manufacturer Pratt & Whitney. All in all, he had committed TWA to $402 million in purchases, which in modern currency is $4.31 billion. Needless to say, neither Hughes nor the airline had that kind of money. Perpetually incensed at the thought of having to bring outside investment into any of his ventures, Hughes refused to seek financing for the new jets, instead cooking up a new harebrained tax avoidance scheme that followed in the footsteps of his medical institute. TWA, the operator of the planes, would not actually own them. Instead, the planes would be bought by the Hughes Tool Company, who would then lease them to the airline for a fee. Not only would this allow Hughes to siphon off money from TWA into his own pocket, but it would also allow for the accountants at the tool company to charge depreciation on the jet assets against the company's federal taxes, in the process saving Hughes millions of dollars per year. Unsurprisingly, this plan would fall through when the federal government reminded Hughes that what he was planning was illegal, yet he still made no attempt to find a serious way to pay for the planes. His massive commitment had seriously endangered the stability of the entire Hughes empire. 
Paying for the planes as stipulated by the contracts would have bankrupted the tool company, and so, rather reasonably, it sparked a massive conflict between Hughes and his executives at Toolco, including his second-in-command, Noah Dietrich, who by that time was executive vice president and had become known as the Iron Potentate of the Hughes Empire. By the fall of 1956, as his mental health continued to decline due to the mounting jet financing crisis and his conflicts with Houston executives, Hughes began to fear that Dietrich was conspiring with others in his organization to have him committed to a mental hospital. We'll talk about the behaviors that inspired that belief in a moment, but first we need to finish the tale of the Iron Potentate. Dietrich, who had been in escalating conflict with Hughes over TWA, as well as his long-standing refusal to give stock options in Hughes' tool, came to a boil on May 12, 1957. After 32 years of employment, Hughes, never the one to sully himself with an uncomfortable situation, didn't even fire him over the phone. He simply told everyone else at 7000 Romain Street that Dietrich had been sacked and immediately changed the locks on the building. The two men would never speak again. Going back to Howard's mental state, it's thought that his fear of involuntary commitment was one of the primary motivators behind his January 12, 1957 marriage to his second wife, Jean Peters. The couple, who had seen each other on and off since 1946, were taken via an elaborate and secretive process to a nondescript motel room in the tiny town of Tonopah, Nevada, where they were wed by a justice of the peace under assumed names. A side note, in 1948, Hughes would hire a private security firm to spy on Peters, who he believed was seeing another man. It would be the first step in a long and tumultuous business relationship between Hughes and CIA spook Robert Mayhew. We'll get to him later. Anyway, marriage would make Howard's institutionalization impossible without his wife's consent. Hughes was quickly approaching another mental breakdown. At the end of 1956, in a moment of uncommon personal vulnerability, Howard Hughes picked up the phone and called his only childhood friend, perhaps his only friend at all, Dudley Sharp. I've messed up my life. I'm miserable, Hughes told him. Dudley gave him the rather sage advice that if Howard did not like the path he was on, it was within his own power to change his course. It seems, though, that perhaps he only wanted pity, because Hughes flatly disagreed, saying that he had, quote, messed it up so much that there was nothing I can do about it now. With that, Hughes hung up. The two friends would never speak again. After his marriage a few months later, Hughes and his new bride returned to Los Angeles, where they resumed residence in the bungalows of the Beverly Hills Hotel. The couple lived separately, with Hughes occupying bungalow four and his aides and supplies occupying several more, at its height, seven other bungalows, while Jean Peters lived in number 19A. Hughes would regularly avoid his responsibilities by spending all night watching movies in the screening room on the MGM lot. This practice continued until he discovered that the facilities were also being used by the all-black cast of Porgy and Bess. Hughes never returned, and instead started watching movies in a private screening room on Sunset Boulevard. It was in this new theater, faced by the pressures of mounting crises on all fronts, that Hughes began to experience the onset of a devastating mental breakdown. 
In the spring of 1958, Hughes announced to his aides that he would be taking up residence in the screening room for, quote, a little while. It would end up being four months. Inside the small theater, Hughes sat alone in a giant white leather chair, first in soiled clothes and then completely naked, save for a pink handkerchief covering his genitals. His diet was the same every day, Hershey bars with almonds, pecans, and fresh whole milk in a bottle. Hughes would urinate in the empty milk bottles and stack them against the wall. He obsessively wiped down his chair with Kleenex tissues, which he kept in boxes stacked in patterns that he would compulsively rearrange. Aides were instructed not to look at or speak to him, and his food was delivered each day in an elaborate ritual of his own design. At the end of August 1958, Hughes left the Sunset Boulevard screening room and returned to Bungalow 4 at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Though he was out of the theater, the most destructive part of his mental decline was yet to come. He brought his white leather chair from the screening room and set it up in the middle of his new living room. All the other furniture was pushed against the walls so that he could be freed for what Hughes called his, quote, germ-free zone. In reality, it just cleared more space on the floor that could be covered in discarded tissues, yellow legal pads, and growing towers of newspapers that became so high that paths for human traversal had to be carved in the floor. Hughes sat in his chair, almost comatose, watching movie after movie, clouding his mind with codeine and Valium. Parked at the curb outside, his black Cadillac had sat immobile for so long that its tires went flat and small plants started to grow in the front seat. It was during this period that Hughes would write some of his most infamous memos, including a three-page single-spaced manual on how to open and serve a can of peaches. Here's the rather lengthy procedure that Hughes, who suffered from congenital hearing defects, laid out for retrieving his hearing aid. Quote, First, use six or eight Kleenex pulled one at a time from the slot in touching the doorknob to open the door to the bathroom. The door is to be left open so there will be no need to touch anything when leaving the bathroom. The same sheaf of Kleenex may be employed to turn on the spigot so as to obtain a good force of warm water. This Kleenex is then to be disposed of. A sheaf of six or eight Kleenexes is then to be used to open the cabinet containing the soap and a fresh bar of soap that has never been opened is to be used. All Kleenex used up to this point is to be disposed of. The hands are to be washed with extreme care, far more thoroughly than they have ever been washed before, taking great pains that the hands do not touch the sides of the bowl, the spigot, or anything in the process. Great care should also be exercised when setting the soap down on the soap dish or whatever it is set on to make sure that the hands do not come into contact with anything. A sheaf of 15 to 20 Kleenex are next to be used to turn off the spigots, and the Kleenex is then to be thrown away. It is to be understood that while each Kleenex tissue, as it is normally pulled from the box, consists of a double thickness, actually, when one Kleenex is referred to, one of these double Kleenexes is meant. The door to the cabinet is then to be opened using a minimum of 15 Kleenexes. Great care is to be exercised in opening and closing the doors. They are not to be slammed or swung hastily as to raise any dust, and yet exceeding care is to be exercised against letting insects in. Nothing inside the cabinet is to be touched. The inside of the doors, the top of the cabinet, the inside, no other objects inside the cabinet are to be touched in any way, with the exception of the envelope to be removed. 
The envelope or package is to be removed using a minimum of 15 Kleenexes. If it is necessary to use both hands, then 15 Kleenexes should be used for both hands. It is to be understood that these 15 Kleenexes are to be sterile on both sides of each tissue with the exception of the very outermost edge of the tissue. The center of the tissue should only come into contact with the object being picked up. If something is on top of the package to be removed, a sterile instrument is to be used to lift it off. In case you were counting, that's a minimum of 57 Kleenexes. Even if we knew nothing about his self-imposed living conditions at the time, it would be clear from reading that memorandum alone, not to mention the thousands of others that were fired off with regularity, that Howard Hughes was extremely unwell. While his mental illness had always created issues for Hughes, by 1958 his obsessions, compulsions, and phobias had an iron grip over his life. Howard Hughes, the man, was not in control. The course of his life was now being dictated by neuroses and enabled by a vast network of aids that did not push Hughes to seek the mental health he needed, but instead enabled and encouraged his every destructive tendency. He'll come into fuller focus once we reach the Vegas era of Hughes's life, but just to introduce a character here, the one responsible for coordinating his vast network of assistants, guards, drivers, pilots, and doctors, all of whom played some part in enabling Hughes, was a devout Mormon named Frank William Gay. First coming to work at Romaine Street in October 1947, he would quickly become Hughes's top personal aide and slowly consolidate power across the organization. It was Gay who was responsible for the formation of what would eventually come to be known as the Mormon Mafia, a group of Mormon executives who would in later years completely dominate the Hughes empire. By hiring other Mormons who he knew were in need of work, Gay created a powerful base of employees at Romaine Street that owed their loyalty to Bill Gay, not Howard Hughes. Eventually, the links between the Hughes organization and the Mormon church grew so strong that when a position opened up at Romaine Street, notices would go up on community boards and Mormon churches across Southern California. With that little tangent, let's get back to the problem that was at the center of Hughes's 1958 breakdown, the fast-approaching financial crisis at TWA. In August 1958, when Hughes left the screening room on Sunset, he had only seven months until TWA would take delivery of its first Boeing 707 in March 1959. Each of the 30 planes would cost as much as $6 million, and they would be delivered at a rate of once per month. As Hughes sat in his white leather chair in the germ-free zone of Bungalow 4, he spent the few lucid hours he had attempting in his own way to find the money for the planes. After two financing deals, one with an investor from Boston and another with Merrill Lynch had both fallen through, Hughes found himself in February 1959, a month before the first 707 rolled off the line and no closer to his goal. Disaster seemed imminent, and with his longtime fixer Noah Dietrich no longer in his employ, Hughes was on his own. It's under these circumstances that he started feeling out the possibility of a deal with a group of Wall Street banks. By the end of March, this had resulted in the formation of two plans, one of Hughes's own creation and one by the investment bank Dillon Reed & Company. Let's see if you can guess which one is which. 
One plan called for the Hughes Tool Company to receive a capital infusion from the banks, which they would then use to purchase the jets and lease them to TWA, providing Hughes great tax benefits while damaging the financial security of the airline. The other plan involves Hughes Tool taking on $100 million in debt, which, when combined with $160 million from the banks, would allow Toolco to pay for the planes, which would then become the sole property of TWA. You may notice that the plan, which was obviously Hughes's, bears a striking resemblance to his initial plan to finance the jets, which he was told was illegal by the Civil Aeronautics Board. His insistence on the adoption of this strategy, referred to as the lease plan, eventually caused the collapse of the first negotiations, when, in late March, the airline's largest lender vetoed the disbursement of any lease fees to Hughes. Until some kind of deal was reached, Hughes was stuck paying out of pocket for jets that he didn't own with money that he was very quickly running out of. What's more, things were looking to become much worse. At Convair, the production of TWA's 3880s was going on like a well-oiled machine. The mid-range jets would start arriving in the fall of 1959. Remember that Hughes got out of paying Convair incrementally over the course of the plane's productions, which is standard practice in the aerospace industry. As a result, the planes, which normally would have been already paid for, would now be coming out with a price tag of $3.5 million each. It was money that Hughes simply did not have. He already sold six 707s to Pan Am, a devastating blow to TWA, but that money had quickly evaporated. Taking delivery of the planes from Convair would bankrupt him, or worse, force him out of control of TWA. With the 880s looming on the horizon, it became critical for Hughes not to obtain the financing that would dilute his control yet save his empire, but to ensure that he would under no circumstances take delivery of the planes from Convair. On October 5th, 1959, a group of armed men descended on the Convair plant in San Diego, surrounding the first plane that was scheduled to be delivered to TWA, halting the work which at that point was at near completion. The men guarded the plane around the clock. Later that week, they captured another, and then next week, two more, until the Hughes men controlled four 880s and work on the entire line had ground to a stop. The four planes were then towed out of the factory and cordoned off in a special area of the tarmac surrounded by Hughes guards. The TWA order had made Hughes Convair's largest, and at that point, only customer. They had sunk hundreds of millions of dollars into the design and production of the plane, and so they were powerless to meaningfully retaliate against Hughes. All they could do was remove the rest of TWA's 880s from the production area, stopping work on the entire order. It was a move that would be devastating to TWA. The planes that Hughes had already ordered later than their competitors would now arrive much later than scheduled. It was exactly what Hughes wanted. He had indefinitely stalled his payments for the jet. When all was said and done, the fiasco would cause Convair to lose $490 million, adjusted for inflation over $4.92 billion. Hughes had forestalled his immediate personal financial collapse, but it had slowly become clear that there was no way to solve the larger financing crisis without going to the banks. To that end, in March 1960, Hughes agreed to pursue the original plan created by Dylan Reed and Company, the assumption of $100 million in debt to the tool company. 
In drafting the documentation, the lending parties, wary of Hughes's infamous management style and witnesses to the havoc he had wrought on the airline, included a provision in the contract that stated, essentially, if Hughes meddled with the management of TWA or sabotaged the deal, he would have to surrender control of the airline, placing his shares in a 10-year voting trust. This little fact is relevant because, as you've probably figured out by now, Howard Hughes was a meddler. In fact, he was, at that very moment, involved in a conflict with TWA's management, its president, Charles Thomas. Hughes had played Thomas a familiar song, something that he told all the executives who worked under him, but he never actually delivered on, granting stock options. Thomas, who Hughes had hired in 1958, agreed based on the condition that, after two years, he would be given stock in the airline. Well, by the spring of 1960, just when Hughes is faced with losing control of his shares if he upsets airline management, that two-year period was just about up. Thomas began to try and contact Hughes about the promised options, but for months Hughes was evasive. When Thomas finally did get a hold of him in July 1960, Hughes refused to grant him stock in the airline, proposed a new employment arrangement that would bring Thomas further under his control, and refused to negotiate on any point. On July 23, 1960, Charles Thomas resigned. Hughes had meddled in TWA's management, and the consortium of banks behind the deal immediately cancelled the contract. Hughes was once again thrown into financial crisis by his own hand. At this point, Hughes, who was essentially bankrupt, searched desperately for a financing plan that would allow him to circumvent the Wall Street banks and maintain his grip on the airline. The miracle Hughes was hoping for did not materialize, and faced with no other options, he once again agreed to the Dylan Reed financing plan. This time, the lenders, soured by their first dealings with Hughes, structured the deal to be even more punishing, requiring him to immediately place his stock in a voting trust, surrendering control of the airline. The requirement infuriated Hughes, who immediately backed out of the deal. After looking in vain for yet another way out, Hughes found himself backed into a corner, and in November 1960, he for a third time agreed to the Dylan Reed plan, this time with even harsher terms. In the middle of December, his shares were placed into the voting trust, and on December 30th, the final papers were signed. Howard Hughes had lost. It seemed that his days at TWA were over, yet back in California, Hughes lay in bed, sealed inside his and Jean's new house north of San Diego, and began what would amount to years of scheming to retake control of his airline. One of these strategies amounted to essentially harassing TWA, using his representatives on the board to be as disruptive as possible. In response, the airline's new management called a stockholders meeting and voted to expel the Hughes representatives. After further challenges by Hughes to the validity of the already signed agreement, and with whispers of him filing a lawsuit against the airline, TWA filed an antitrust suit against Hughes on June 30th, 1961. Its aims were to secure over $100 million in damages and force him by court order to sell his shares. TWA v. Hughes was the beginning of a lawsuit that would outlast Hughes himself. TWA's initial plan was to force Hughes into a quick settlement. How would they do that? By requiring him to appear in court. 
By this time, his reclusiveness was widely known, and whispers of his mental illness circulated in elite business circles. Though TWA's lawyers were not aware of the extent to which Howard Hughes had mentally declined, they could tell that he was not at all eager to show his face in public. The threat of having to do so would be sure to force Hughes to settle. It almost did, and Hughes was prepared to accept TWA's terms before changing his mind and deciding to kick off one of the longest lawsuits in history. To execute his legal strategy, he would need the cooperation of the Civil Aeronautics Board, which was not on the best of terms with after the destruction he had wrought at TWA. Hughes needed a sneaky backhanded scheme to get back into the CAB's good graces, or if he could not be welcomed back with open arms, he knew a way he could force them on his side. Before we get deep into this new plot, I should denote that during this period, November 1961, Hughes and Jean Peters moved to a new house at 1001 Bel Air Road in Los Angeles, where they would reside in separate bedrooms on opposite sides of the house. Hughes had heavy drapes installed all over his windows and ordered them sealed shut with tape. A small communications room was set up outside his bedroom where aides sent from Roe Main Street were cycled in and out on eight-hour shifts. Hughes, who now rarely left bed, could summon them with a bell. So what was the grand plan this man had cooked up to win against TWA? How could he force the CAB to take his side in the antitrust suit? Well, the Civil Aeronautics Board hated Hughes for ruining TWA, but there was one thing that it hated even more, a total airline failure. Luckily for Hughes, there was one such airline that seemed to be teetering on the brink of total destruction. Hughes just so happened to own stock in it, and it just so happened to be owned by Floyd Odlum, who had sold Hughes RKO. The carrier in question was Northeast Airlines, based in Boston and serving New England, as well as a single Florida route. It was bleeding money at an alarming pace, and by 1961 did not have enough cash on hand to cover a single day's operating expenses. If Hughes could ferret his way into controlling Northeast, the CAB would be forced to side with him in the TWA case, as Hughes's money would be the only thing preventing the total collapse of New England's domestic airline. Hughes had his plan, now he just needed to maneuver into it. In September 1961, it was arranged that Northeast Airlines would officially, publicly petition Hughes to bail out the airline. Hughes, this time playing the role as a devout follower of rules, said that he would only supply funds if the CAB approved. In October, the very next month, Hughes began secretly paying the airline's fuel bill, thereby becoming the only thing between Northeast and instant bankruptcy. Then, at the end of the month, Hughes's lawyers formally asked the CAB if they could be allowed to pay the airline's bills, while stating publicly that they had already been doing so for weeks. After outcry from the other airlines, Hughes turned up the pressure on the CAB by publicly renouncing his pledge to fund Northeast. The situation was desperate, just as Hughes wanted. Now Northeast was begging the CAB to let him assist. It was either that or collapse. The board relented and on December 4th decided that Northeast could receive the much-needed funding from Hughes. Almost immediately, Hughes began concocting a deal that would allow him to buy out the 55% stake owned by Floyd Odlum's Atlas Corporation. 
At the end of December 1961, the deal was signed. Hughes would pay $5 million for Atlas's shares in Northeast, in one move raising his ownership stake from 11% to 66%. Howard Hughes now controlled another airline. This one, an important strategic tool in his fight for TWA. Indeed, riding high from his victory over the CAB in the acquisition of Northeast, Hughes filed a countersuit against TWA that sought to disband the voting trust, pay Hughes over $300 million in damages, and allow him to resume control of the airline. The size and complexity of the lawsuits between Hughes and TWA seemed to be growing exponentially. After Hughes used his reclusiveness and large network of houses to dodge a subpoena from TWA, his lawyer Raymond Cook accepted it on his behalf, and on May 3, 1963, when Hughes still failed to appear in court, the presiding judge, Charles Metzner, dismissed the Hughes countersuit and awarded TWA a default judgment. Hughes would now be required to pay the airline damages, but how much was yet to be determined. In a show of mercy, Judge Metzner did not compel Hughes to sell his TWA stock, which was a goal of the original suit. Though he had suffered a hefty defeat, again from little other than his own decisions, he still had one ace up his sleeve. And as his lawyers began appealing the decision to higher and higher courts, Hughes went to work on the CAB. In the spring of 1964, Hughes formally filed a request with the CAB that would allow him to purchase the remainder of the outstanding debt from Hughes' tool, then just over $90 million. If such a move were approved, then it would allow Hughes to immediately reassert control over TWA. It's unknown exactly what kind of leverage Hughes had at his disposal. The situation with Northeast certainly helped. But in June 1964, the CAB, which had previously stated that Hughes could not regain control of TWA unless a government inquiry found it to be in the public interest, gave the man who had nearly destroyed the airline permission to buy out the remaining loan notes. It was a stunning victory, but short-lived. TWA protested heavily at the idea of having Hughes back at the helm, and in December 1964, the U.S. Court of Appeals ruled that the CAB had not acted in according with its own regulations in the approval of the Hughes request, and overturned the decision. His lawyers were having the same luck, and by the fall of 1966 had exhausted all of their options. The Supreme Court had said that they would not hear appeals for the Hughes decisions. There was nowhere left to go. Despite all his maneuvering, extensive scheming, and underhanded machinations, Howard Hughes would never again control TWA. In May of 1966, he decided to part ways with the airline for good, offloading his entire 78% stake that since 1962 had sat in a voting trust. Ironically, it's thanks to the competent management of that very voting trust that had caused TWA's stock price to rise more than 600%. And when Hughes sold his shares for $86 each, he walked away from the deal pocketing $546 million, today just a hair under $5 billion. Yet this massive windfall, which alone made him one of the wealthiest people on earth, was sour grapes for Howard Hughes. Not only had he lost control of his prized airline, but he would now be faced with an astronomically high income tax bill. Going back to his lifelong mission to minimize his state and federal taxes by any means, Howard Hughes decided that it was time to make a move. 
after juggling a host of new locations in his head in July 1966 in the dead of night, Howard Hughes and his entourage left for Boston by train. Stepping out of the front door of 1001 Bel Air Road and into the waiting car, it was the first time Howard Hughes had been outside in over four years. Upon his arrival in Boston, Hughes and his staff rented the entire fifth floor of the Ritz-Carlton. Though the trip was initially supposed to last for, quote, a few days, Hughes would remain in Boston for four months, taking great pains to decide where he would relocate next. By November, he had made his decision. As he entered the last decade of his life, the penultimate phase of Howard Hughes had begun. On Thanksgiving Day 1966, Hughes rolled into Las Vegas on a private train car and was immediately ushered to his new home, the penthouse on the ninth floor of the Desert Inn. His aides, messengers, and general staff occupied the entire eighth floor. This is a good time to bring Robert Mayhew back into the picture. Like I mentioned previously, Hughes first encountered Mayhew when he hired him to spy on Gene Peters in the 1940s. Since that time, Hughes had been increasingly using Mayhew and his company of investigators as a group of private fixers who did everything from deliver bribes to tap phones to put judges under surveillance. You name it. Mayhew was a freelance CIA agent with a bevy of connections to the political intelligence worlds. I don't get into it in that episode because I thought it was just going on too long, but at this point, this episode is getting pretty ridiculously lengthy, so I may as well include it in here. If you listened to last episode and found yourself wondering who was the person who actually organized and orchestrated the RFK assassination, evidence points to Mayhew being the mastermind. Not only did he do, quote, cutout jobs for the CIA, which are jobs so sensitive that the agency cannot be directly associated with them, but Thane Caesar, the guard who shot Kennedy twice under the right arm, aside from working for the CIA at Lockheed, was also employed by Robert Mayhew as a longtime bodyguard for Howard Hughes. In the investigation of the Kennedy assassination, multiple leads traced the planning and the plot back to Las Vegas. But... Anyway, that happens in 1968, and at this point, it's still 1966. Mayhew is worming his way into Hughes's good graces, and by the time of the Las Vegas move, had successfully dethroned Bill Gay as the man with the closest access to Hughes. Mayhew's victory was so total that after the relocation to Las Vegas, Hughes ordered all ties to be severed with Gay's faction at Romaine Street. The little office building which had served as the springboard for Hughes's empire was being completely sidelined in favor of consolidating operations in Las Vegas, supervised, coincidentally, by Robert Mayhew. Though he would never actually meet the reclusive Hughes, instead dealing with him exclusively by telephone, Mayhew would become a critical part of the Hughes Nevada operations. Eventually, he would also be one of the most glaring symbols of its dysfunction and mismanagement. But before we talk about the fall of Hughes' Nevada operations, first we need to talk about its rise. With $500 million burning a hole in his pocket, the first thing in Las Vegas that Hughes would add to his collection would be his new home, the Desert Inn. 
Built and owned by a consortium of mob-connected gamblers, including Moe Dalitz, tension began to grow and grow between Hughes and the management throughout the fall and winter of 1966. Dalitz and his group had not expected Hughes to stay in the penthouse long term. It was now fast approaching the profitable New Year's season, and Hughes, along with his entourage, were occupying the best and most expensive rooms in the hotel. To make matters worse, his predominantly Mormon staff members neither gambled nor drank. Desperate to clear the rooms that had already been booked for the upcoming holiday season, Dalitz and company ordered Hughes and his staff to leave the hotel. Hughes decided that he would absolutely not leave. Instead, he would just buy it. After a series of prolonged, constantly changing negotiations that even included an intervention from Jimmy Hoffa, Dalitz and his partners agreed to sell out on March 31st, 1967. For just over $13 million, Hughes would take the lease held by the Desert Inn Operating Company, which allowed him to operate the hotel until 2022. It's important to note that Hughes did not actually purchase the buildings themselves, only the right to run the casino. With the lease on the Desert Inn now safely in Hughes' possession, he now needed to go through the process of obtaining a gaming license in his name. The application for such a license required a large amount of disclosures, both personal and financial, as well as an in-person appearance. These were things that, of course, Hughes would refuse to provide. Instead, he would need a well-connected Las Vegas lawyer to shepherd him through the process. That lawyer was Thomas Bell, who had connections to the gaming board, both Nevada senators, and the governor, Paul Lexalt. It was Bell who would introduce Hughes to the world of Nevada politics and open the door for his massive influence-peddling operations. Wary from a series of scandals about mob involvement in the Strip, the clean, strong public image of Hughes lent good credence to his belief that the application would be approved even without all the requisite materials. Even so, just to put the icing on the cake, Hughes returned to his old role of the promoter. He publicly offered millions of dollars to fund a medical school in southern Nevada, which had been languishing for lack of state funds. It was a huge public relations boon, and Hughes was treated like a hero by the Las Vegas press and public. Though, like many Hughes promises, the donation would never actually materialize, it was enough so that on March 30th, just a few days after the announcement, the Nevada State Gaming Board voted unanimously to approve Hughes' gaming license for the Desert Inn. It was the beginning of a series of extensive acquisitions that would eventually make Hughes the largest hotel owner on the Strip, the largest employer in Nevada, and the largest landowner in the state. Yet, despite its size, Hughes' Nevada operations would be a consistent money loser. Well, at least for Hughes. Isolated away in his penthouse, declining mentally with no contact to the outside world except for four personal aides, Hughes would soon become unaware of the true health and state of his holdings, an issue that would only grow in time. Executives, including Robert Mayhew, used this isolation to continually mislead Hughes about the success of his ventures, creating the perfect opportunity to enrich themselves in various self-dealing transactions at Hughes' expense. By the time of his death, Hughes' Nevada operations had made a select few executives and Vegas criminals very rich, and had caused Hughes himself to rack up losses in the hundreds of millions. In August 1967, Hughes bought the famous Sands Casino for just under $15 million in a deal designed by Mayhew that conveniently gave Mayhew and his friends hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees. 
That autumn, Hughes, who liked to stay up all night watching movies, irritated that the local station signed off at 2 a.m., continued his buying spree by purchasing Las Vegas's CBS affiliate television station, KLAS. Hughes had the station broadcast movies of his choice all night, and would often call to request that a certain movie be played, changed, or even rewound. A favorite of his was a 1968 Cold War thriller called Ice Station Zebra, which, during his stay in Las Vegas, Hughes ordered KLAS to play hundreds of times. In October 1967, Hughes bought the Castaway Casino for $3.3 million, and that December bought the Frontier. Outside of these large casino purchases, which practically overnight made Hughes the biggest single player in Las Vegas gaming, he also acquired other real estate, a small airport, a charter airline, over the course of one year, Hughes spent $65 million, equivalent to half a billion, to buy a diversified empire in southern Nevada, and the number of his assets would only grow from here. By the beginning of 1968, Hughes owned one out of every five hotel rooms on the Strip. On April 30th, 1968, Hughes purchased the Silver Slipper. Now, there is a very popular story about Howard Hughes and the Silver Slipper, and that is that he bought the casino only so he could turn off its large shoe-shaped sign. And sure, that's a fun story, but like a lot of things you can hear about Howard Hughes, it isn't actually true. By 1968, Hughes had been sealing out the sunlight with heavy drapery for over a decade. As a matter of fact, when Hughes finally left the Desert Inn in 1970, hotel employees found that the drapes had been drawn shut so long that the bottoms had rotten through. Even if it was normally visible from the penthouse, there's no way he could have seen it. So, no, Hughes did not buy the silver slipper to turn off the sign. Unfortunately, the rather fun story about Hughes' fickle taste in ice cream flavors leaving the Desert Inn giving out free banana nut ice cream for years is also probably not true. The source for that story is Robert Mayhew, who firstly is not a reliable source, and secondly, as we'll later see, had a very dramatic break with Hughes in 1970. That is completely belying the fact that all his life Hughes compulsively ate French vanilla, and was not really the kind of person who liked to change up his routines. So, anyway... At the same time that Hughes is acquiring the Silver Slipper, he's also making moves to purchase the Stardust, the Bonanza, and the Silver Nugget. The purchase of the combined four casinos drew attention from federal antitrust lawyers. The Slipper, the Nugget, and the Bonanza were small, money-losing casinos. The real item of contention was the Stardust, one of the largest and most successful casinos on the Strip. The move would have made Hughes by far the biggest gaming figure in all of Nevada, though the Nevada Gaming Commission, over which Hughes had influence, approved his licenses for the Slippers, Stardust, and Bonanza, Hughes had not yet made an offer on the Nugget, the federal government threatened suit if the Stardust purchase went through, causing Hughes, via Mayhew, to back out in the process paying Mo Dalitz, the Stardust's owner, a $3 million fee. Of course, some of this trickled back to Mayhew and his friends. At this point, Robert Mayhew was pulling down a salary from Hughes equivalent in modern currency to almost $12,000 a day. As if that were not enough, Hughes Nevada Operations, the unofficial quote-unquote subsidiary that Mayhew had set up to manage the casinos and other properties, was run as his own private fiefdom. 
He filled the staff roles with family and friends who each pulled down vastly inflated salaries and were encouraged to spend freely and bill it to the company. Mayhew would use employees from the Hughes casinos to remodel his yacht and his apartment. Ironically, one of the arguments that Mayhew had employed against monopoly allegations was that Hughes' dominance of the casino industry was good for business and the image of Las Vegas because he eliminated the skimming practices so popular with the mafia. Behind the curtain, however, it becomes obvious that, due to the scale of the Hughes holdings, Mayhew was a bigger skimmer than any of the mobsters could have ever hoped to be. He had a multi-million dollar mansion, a yacht, a penthouse by the ocean in LA, a fleet of private luxury cars, instant access to a Hughes company jet, and far more. All paid for on the Hughes dime, much of it without his knowledge. To give you some more insight into the character of Howard Hughes, it's also at this time, the fall of 1968, that Hughes engaged in one of his old political pastimes, opposing civil rights legislation. In a memorandum to Mayhew about his opposition to Governor Laxalt's push to desegregate housing and hire more minorities in strip casinos, Hughes wrote, and if you'll excuse the language, quote, Now, Bob, I have never made my views known on this subject, and I certainly would not say these things in public. However, I can summarize my attitude about employing more Negroes very simply. I think it is a wonderful idea for somebody else, somewhere else. I know this is not a very praiseworthy point of view, but I feel the Negroes have already made enough progress to last the next 100 years, and there is such a thing as overdoing it. I know this is a hot potato, and I'm not asking you to form a new chapter of the KKK. Just let's try to do what you can without too many people getting upset. I thought I'd better get this to you before somebody commits you to head up some pro-Negro committee. At the same time that Hughes was dreaming up ways to stop integration in Nevada housing and businesses, he would enter the arena for the third major political cause that he fought for in his life, ending the testing of nuclear bombs at the Nevada test site just north of Las Vegas. This opposition to the bomb might seem confusing, coming from a man whose aircraft company had rolled up a massive fortune producing weapons and weapon systems for the military. In truth, Hughes was not against atomic testing. He was against it happening near him. Mushroom clouds from the test site were visible from the top floor of Hughes' landmark hotel, which he bought in 1969. The shockwaves jingled chandeliers and sent ripples through drinks across the city. Hughes thought it was bad publicity. Not only was he terrified of byproducts from the tests contaminating his hotels, but Las Vegas was supposed to be a vacation wonderland where people could escape from the concerns of the world. How could they do that while being perpetually reminded of the possibility of global nuclear war? In his efforts to stop the testing, Hughes dispersed hundreds of thousands of dollars to Nevada politicians, used senators and the governor to exert pressure on the Atomic Energy Commission, paid a massive bribe to Vice President Hubert Humphrey, and more. He even wrote a letter to President Johnson, which happened to be filled with errors and misrepresentations about the president's own life and career. As one might expect upon receiving such a letter, Johnson ignored it. Hughes would ultimately be unsuccessful in his attempts to halt underground nuclear testing around Las Vegas, and it would not be until 1974, four years after Hughes had abandoned the city, that the United States signed the Threshold Test Ban Treaty, 
which limited the size of bombs that could be subjected to underground testing. As Hughes continued to decline, isolated from the outside world, making increasingly irrational business decisions, he planned a complex expansion to his sprawling empire that would give him control of another airline, vastly expand his land holdings, and be a return to the Hughes family roots. Howard Hughes Jr., just like his father before him, would seek a new fortune underneath the surface of the earth. Before we talk about the Hughes takeover of Air West, which spawns a whole saga and legal battle of its own, first let's talk about the mines, because that is the comparatively less complicated story. While in 1971 President Nixon would ultimately sever the US dollar from the gold standard, in the years preceding the break, the price of gold, so the volume of the commodity traded, the desire to mine precious metals all increased drastically as the Bretton Woods monetary system headed for an economic crunch that would soon bring about its downfall. This is the climate in which, in March 1968, Robert Mayhew sent Hughes a memo suggesting that it would be highly profitable to begin buying up old mining claims around Nevada. According to Mayhew, many of these claims still had provable reserves, and with the use of new computerized mining equipment, would become massive moneymakers. Acting under this guidance, Hughes first approved the purchase of two tracts of mining claims for just under a quarter of a million dollars. A few weeks later, he snapped up two long-abandoned silver and zinc claims outside Good Springs, Nevada for two million, then 900 acres of gold claims outside Mina. It was the beginning of a rapid buying spree unparalleled in volume. By the end of 1968, Hughes owned over 2,000 individual mining claims across the state, all of which were supposed to catapult him to even greater wealth and power. The string of purchases continued into 1969. Hughes was seemingly buying every available tract of mining land in the entire state. Dozens and dozens of tracts bought up with no master plan, often for hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars more than they were actually worth. Hughes was well on his way to becoming the largest landowner in Nevada, which he would be by the time he stopped buying in 1970. Out of his own dwindling cash reserves, Hughes was laying out over a million dollars per month to purchase the mines. Yet there was one problem. The claims were absolutely worthless. Of the 112 Hughes mines in Nye County, Nevada, a full 105 of them had, quote, no value in terms of recognizable mineral deposits. Of the 85 claims Hughes held in White Pine County, 65 of them, quote, lack metallic mineralization and can be considered worthless as mining properties. This was a trend that continued throughout all of the newly acquired tracts. Some of the claims he had paid for he didn't actually even own. It was clear to everyone except Hughes, who in the past decade had seen perhaps less than 10 people, that the mining operation was a massive grift. But who was the beneficiary? Well, in 1968, John Meyer, a businessman with a murky past and loyalties to Romaine Street's Bill Gay, who was plotting his return in exile from California, was hired to supervise the Hughes mining operation. Meyer, who did not hold a college degree and had no experience with mining, was billed to the public as having two doctorate degrees. Dr. Meyer was then given an official title as the scientific advisor to the Hughes Tool Company. 
In his new position, Meyer, just like Mayhew before him, used his newfound power to engineer a series of self-enriching deals using the Hughes fortune. The mining claims, supposedly so rich with untapped gold, snapped up so eagerly by an excited Hughes, were often owned by friends and connections of John Meyer, or second-string acquaintances somewhere down the line. Meyer engineered each of these deals so that not only would the seller be wildly overpaid for what was more likely than not to be worthless land, but Meyer, the seller, and anyone else with a finger in the pie would also be the beneficiary of hefty payouts and finder's fees. As Hughes racked up hundreds of tracts of barren desert, Dr. Meyer became a very wealthy man. By the time Meyer resigned under pressure from Mayhew in November 1969, Hughes had spent $20,000,000 on over 2,000 mining claims that were worth only a tiny fraction of that. Meyer would later be charged with avoiding over $2,000,000 in taxes and would be sued for damages by Hughes' tool. The Doctor escaped first to the island nation of Tonga, then to Australia, and finally to Canada, where he currently lives to this day at the age of 88. So, now that we know a bit about how Hughes was fleeced out of millions of dollars in the establishment of his mining division, let's talk about the final business disaster that will befall Howard Hughes before his departure from the Desert Inn penthouse. At the beginning of the 60s, Hughes had been on the verge of bankruptcy. An expansion in the oil drilling market in the middle of the decade brought renewed profits for Toolco, and the massive income from the sale of his TWA stock had placed Hughes once more in a strong financial position. By 1969, Hughes again teetered on the edge of financial disaster. Of all his extensive Vegas holdings, only two assets, the Stardust and the Sands, were turning a profit, and even that was a pale comparison to the money they had been making at the beginning of the decade. His mining ventures were bleeding cash at an alarming rate with no sign of ever turning a profit. In 1967, Hughes had overseen the creation and execution of a disastrous contract to build light helicopters for the military, which ended up costing Hughes Aircraft over $100 million in losses. The future outcome of the TWA damage judgment hung over his head. It could mean he would have to pay the airline over $140 million. To make matters worse, a global downturn in the oil industry meant that the tool company, which had always been able to underwrite the massive expenses of his poor business decisions, was now turning a significantly smaller profit than it had done for the past five decades. It was at this point of extreme vulnerability that Howard Hughes decided that, for the third time in his life, he would once more control an airline. As usual with Hughes, it was all part of an elaborate scheme. In 1968, in an attempt to get rid of the Hughes Aircraft Helicopter Division, which had just finished losing $100 million and was the only part of the aircraft company that he directly managed, Hughes wanted to structure a deal to sell the company to Lockheed. When Lockheed didn't bite, Hughes decided to sweeten the deal by offering to purchase 100 of their new wide-body jet, the L-1011 TriStar. The purchase would cost over $1 billion. Not only was it money that Hughes did not have, but it was a full three times larger than the disastrous TWA jet order that had almost bankrupted Hughes a decade earlier. Outside of the main problem of actually coming up with the money, a serious obstacle remained, that being that Howard Hughes did not actually have an airline that could use such planes. 
Indeed, there was no airline in the world that could economically use 100 L-1011s. Hughes was certainly not going to will it into existence overnight. Instead, he opted to start negotiations to take over both Western Airlines and National Airlines, two regional carriers that served domestic and international flights in the American West. On April 11, 1968, Hughes signed a contract for 75 of the Lockheed TriStars. They would come with an individual price tag of over $14 million, still bringing the total contract value to over $1 billion almost $9 billion today. Over the course of negotiations, which were conducted with the utmost secrecy, word had eventually spread out to other executives in the Hughes organization who recognized the magnitude of the mistake their leader was making. Yet, even if all the execs were gravely concerned, only one of them, Hughes's lawyer Raymond Cook, voiced any concern. The veteran employees in the Hughes organization had remained in their positions by learning to simply agree with and enable every one of Hughes's impulses, and so a broad alliance to challenge the deal did not materialize. Nevertheless, when the plans to acquire Western and National both fell through, Hughes realized that he had essentially doomed himself to total financial implosion with the Lockheed Order, and after a great amount of maneuvering, managed to free himself from the contract. Normally, it would be practically impossible to get out of such a deal without paying a significant amount in damages, but Lockheed ultimately consented to free Hughes from the contract because they, like him, knew that Hughes did not have the funds to actually pay for the planes. Learning from the disastrous track record of aircraft companies that inked contracts with Hughes, the abandonment of the TriStar purchase probably sent a wave of relief over the accountants at Lockheed. In yet another business transaction, Hughes had failed. But from this, he did not take the lesson that perhaps he was not meant to run another airline. Instead, he simply resolved that the next time he purchased an air carrier, and there would be a next time, he would see through it with success. Very quickly, he found his next target. Air West, a small regional Las Vegas airline that largely operated prop planes in Nevada, California, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Colorado. Recently formed out of a merger of three smaller airlines, Air West was sorely undercapitalized and was losing money at a truly alarming rate. Its management was deadlocked, consumed by petty squabbles emanating from the various pre-merger factions. Left to its own devices, Air West would soon collapse. To Hughes, Air West, languishing in McCarran Field like a wounded animal, was the perfect prey. Through Mayhew, Hughes began to make inroads to Air West through the company's president, Nick Bez, born Nikola Bezmilinovic, who had been the owner of one of the constituent parts of Air West. Given the airline's sore financial condition, management issues, and dim prospects of becoming profitable in the near future, Bez was interested in selling. Other factions on the board, however, were not so cooperative. A number of representatives from the other airlines that made up Air West opposed the Hughes deal, believing that the carrier's extensive route through the West and Southwest would eventually yield massive profits with the growth of the Sun Belt. Though stock at the airline was currently sitting at $16, the Air West executives wanted Hughes to pay $25 a share to acquire the company or more specifically, in typical Hughes fashion, to acquire the assets that made up Air West, as opposed to the company itself, resulting in a myriad of tax benefits. 
Incensed by what he believed to be a much inflated price, Hughes set about to acquire Air West, not through engaging in good faith negotiations with the owners, but by backhanded dealings and subterfuge. Hughes offered $22 per share for Air West, and began a secretive campaign to force the board to approve his bid. The first move was hiring a publicist to fraudulently claim that they were representing a group of non-existent Air West stockholders, and through him distribute materials suggesting that the average investor approved of the Hughes deal. Next was sending every Air West stockholder flyers advertising the Hughes buyout, telling them of how good a deal it was, how at $22 per share they would make money hand over fist thanks to the carrier's ever-declining stock price. There was a catch, though, a classic element of financial sleight of hand that was the only business practice at which Hughes ever really excelled. Included into the original contract of the Air West deal was a clause called the net worth provision, and what it said was that if, by the date of the deal's closing, if Air West was not worth at least 75% of what it was when negotiations began, Hughes would retain a right to renegotiate his per share payment on lower terms. What the average holder of Air West stock did not know is that, in losing as much money as it had, Air West was already below the 75% threshold. Of course, the mailers sent to the retail investors only included a brief mention of this provision and did not explain in any depth of how this could impact the price they'd receive for their shares. Even with this highly contentious clause in the books, in the summer of 1968, the Air West board voted 13-12 to 12 to approve the Hughes buyout offer. His victory seemingly secured, Hughes moved to solidify total domination over the Air West deal. With the acquisition approved by the board, Air West's president, Nick Bez, who in three months would be dead from liver cancer, moved to vacate his office and transfer the position to another member of the board. Knowing that the more money Air West lost, the cheaper it would be for him to snatch up, Hughes refused to let Bez resign. His rapidly declining health would ensure that he could not devote time to actually managing the airline, meaning more losses for Air West and better terms for Hughes. At a shareholders meeting at the end of December, Hughes just barely won a vote approving the takeover. The very next day, however, the Air West board, in their final meeting to approve the acquisition, actually rejected the Hughes offer. In the interim, they had gotten proposals from a number of other airlines who did not seek the same damaging terms and asset structure that was built into the Hughes contract. In retaliation, the Hughes attorneys filed shareholder suits against the members of the board, charging them with damages incurred by accepting and then rejecting the Hughes offer. Given that the suit was filed in Delaware, Hughes could seek to have the court seize all the board's Air West stock. It was a bold move, and after telegrams reached the members telling them that they were part of the Hughes suit, the negotiations between Air West and the other airlines instantly collapsed. Simultaneously, stock in the carrier tanked, but not thanks to word of the suit leaking out and startling the shareholders. Instead, three associates of Howard Hughes, who just so happened to own tens of thousands of shares in Air West, coincidentally decided to sell them all at the same time. Of all the trading volume that caused the decline in share price, over 90% of it came from these three individuals. Scared stiff by the prospect of the investor's suit and demoralized by the sudden overnight drop in share prices, by the spring of 1970, the Air West deal would finally close. On April 30th, Hughes paid just over $89 million for the airline. 
Over half of that was eaten up by the net worth clause and returned to Hughes. In reality, he would pay only $41 million. When it came time to pay the stockholders, who had been promised $22 per share, they received only $8.75. Howard Hughes had given them a raw deal, and though he had won the day, his victory would be Pyrrhic. Not only was the airline losing millions of dollars at an alarming rate, but for his manipulation of the market and the deception of investors, Hughes would be subjected to a stockholder's suit that, like many of his legal battles, would outlast the man himself. In 1973, three years before his death, Hughes was indicted by a federal grand jury for his actions in the acquisition of Air West. 1970 was the final year Hughes would spend in Las Vegas. In January, Gene Peters announced that, after 13 years, their marriage was over. They had not slept in the same bed in over eight years. Hughes had not even seen Peters in person for the last three years, ever since his move to Nevada. From the very beginning, it had been a marriage of convenience, but by 1970, the facade had completely fallen away. The divorce was finalized in 1971, with Hughes agreeing to pay a significant amount in alimony in exchange for Peters waiving her claims on the estate. Two months after the ink was dry, Jean Peters remarried a producer from 20th Century Fox. The two would remain together until his death in 1990, with Peters herself passing ten years later. For Howard Hughes, 1970 would be a year of change. First, his marriage would collapse. Then, in April, the long-dreaded TWA damage judgment finally arrived. Hughes was declared liable for $145 million. While his lawyers went about appealing the decisions to higher and higher courts, interest on the payments accrued at a rate of $750,000 a month. By 1970, it was again money that Hughes did not have. After the money-losing casinos, the millions lost in Myers' mining scam, the disaster at Hughes' helicopter, the acquisition of Air West, which was still leaking money like a sieve, and the funding for his massive, inefficient, self-dealing executive structure, Howard Hughes had maneuvered himself into a very vulnerable financial position. To make matters worse, a general economic downturn paired with a contraction in the oil market meant that the tool company was not the safety net Hughes needed it to be. If he was forced to pay the TWA judgment, it would destroy him. Throughout 1970, it hung like a sword of Damocles over his head. It was under these stressed financial conditions that Hughes' schism with Mayhew exploded to the fore. By 1970, executives in the Hughes empire had been invoking the old man's name without his knowledge for many years. Conducting business, conceiving, planning, and closing deals, sometimes in the millions of dollars, without so much as a single communication from the Desert and Penthouse. It was a style of business that Hughes encouraged, both in his living and management styles. In his Penthouse years, aides were very particular about what messages would even reach Hughes, and of those that he did see, it was becoming rarer and rarer for him to handwrite a response. Many times, an aide on duty would take notes on a response to some document or letter from Hughes, but on their own admission, they would make no attempt to take down his words verbatim. It was plain to see that Hughes was, in a practical sense, completely isolated from all the workings of his empire. In the spring of 1970, Howard Hughes caught a whiff of one of these deals that had always been happening right under his nose. Robert Mayhew, since 1968, had been negotiating for the purchase of Los Angeles Airways, a financially troubled helicopter commuter service. Over the next two years, the talks progressed swimmingly. 
Mayhew, even, through various Hughes businesses, gave Los Angeles Airways over $2 million in loans. And so it was that in April 1970, a newspaper article came across Hughes's bed that told him what he was supposedly spending over $3 million to buy the helicopter service, something he was hearing about for the first time. Not only did Hughes not have $3 million to spend, but he did not want to add another money-losing airline to his connection. To make matters worse, the purchase of any other airline service could void the terms of an agreement in the TWA suit, causing Hughes to have to place the whole amount in bond until the end of the appeal process. Mayhew's little helicopter deal could sink him, and the furious Hughes demanded that he called it off. It was the beginning of the end for Robert Mayhew. Hughes uncovered and stopped a number of his other deals in progress. By the summer of 1970, Hughes had been made aware of the truly dismal financial outlook of all his assets, and other old-time Hughes lawyers and executives formed a united front against Mayhew. Eventually, word reached Hughes that Mayhew had been skimming off the top at the casinos and Hughes Nevada operations. It was the final straw. Mayhew was frozen out of the penthouse. All of a sudden, when he called, Hughes would be busy or otherwise unable to come to the phone. Mayhew's voluminous letters attesting to his innocence were screened out of the handful that Hughes saw each day. And then a whisper came down from the Desert Inn. Howard Hughes, who at this point was not lucid a majority of the time, was about to make one of his biggest decisions yet. He was signing away his power of attorney, giving control of all his Nevada operations to a team of three, comprised of Bill Gay, Chester Davis, and Raymond Holiday. This faction that would soon be gaining total control over the only area Mayhew operated was the same one that was attempting to remove him from the organization. When the three longtime Hughes associates learned of their impending promotions, they put into motion the last steps of their plan to oust Robert Mayhew. The board of the Tool Company voted to strip Mayhew of the broad powers he had previously been granted by Hughes, and the documents signing over the Nevada holdings were signed on November 14, 1970. When these new directors met in an executive session on December 3rd, one of their first motions was signing an order terminating Robert Mayhew. He was out for good, and though Mayhew would attempt to fight Hughes tooth and nail for some perceived wrong he had done unto him, he would never again return to the penthouse's good graces. No better is the totality of Mayhew's freeze-out illustrated than by the fact that on November 25, 1970, four years minus one day since Howard Hughes arrived in Las Vegas, he was put on a stretcher and ushered out of the Desert Inn under the cover of darkness, placed in a nondescript van waiting outside, and disappeared. It would take Robert Mayhew, who was supposed to be in charge of coordinating Hughes's security and transportation, a week to even notice he was gone. By the time the story broke in the Las Vegas sun that the Lord of the Desert had abandoned his perch atop the Desert Inn, it was December, and Hughes had comfortably settled into the penthouse of Nassau's Britannia Beach Hotel. Rather than gaze out at the beautiful sea views of the Bahamian Islands, Hughes once again ordered the windows sealed and taped shut. Also in the tale of 1970, Howard Hughes, via a CIA front business called a Global Marine, became linked to a massive, high-tech covert spying operation, one that would not come to light until four years later. 
As his newly empowered executives exerted their control over the Hughes Empire, the man himself whiled away the hours, sealed off on the top floor of the Britannia Beach, spending his waking hours watching movies and television or measuring himself out more and more painkillers. At this point, Hughes would regularly take more than 40 times the recommended daily dosage of codeine and popped 10 milligram Valium tablets like candy. He called them blue bombers on account of their color. It was in this severely reduced mental and physical state that a rather surprising piece of news came across Howard Hughes's bed. On December 7, 1970, the publisher McGraw-Hill very excitedly announced that they had entered into an agreement to publish the autobiography of none other than Hughes himself. According to their press release, which was apparently written by Hughes, the book had been in the works for many years, and in order to bring his life story to the page, Hughes had partnered with an American novelist named Clifford Irving. The excitement around the book was instantaneous. Finally, after 65 years of living, would someone recount to the public the true life of Howard Robard Hughes? There was only one problem. Hughes had written no such book. He had never met Clifford Irving, and had only heard of him upon reading the press release, which he had certainly not written. Hughes was outraged. In line with his other works, Irving's biography would be a work of total fiction. Immediately, the Hughes Tool Company issued a statement that disavowed the book, saying that Hughes had not participated in or was aware of its writing. Yet, for however blatant a fraud the Irving book may have been, it was difficult to completely dispel. After all, from the perspective of the public, if the autobiography was fake, why had Hughes himself not come out and said anything? They could not have known that Hughes was in no mental or physical condition to make such a statement, though whispers of his poor mental health, hygiene, and physical well-being had leaked out of the Hughes organization in years past, they were always quashed and refuted by official statements from executives and occasionally by Hughes himself. The vast majority of the public had no reason to believe that Hughes was anything other than in perfect health, simply sealing himself away because he did not want to be interrupted from his rigorous work schedule. It was a myth that Hughes encouraged at every chance he got. As you well know by now, it couldn't have been further from the truth. The executive team was in a bind. They needed Hughes himself to refute the book, but an in-person appearance was absolutely out of the question. Outside of moving from penthouse to penthouse, Hughes had not left his bedroom in ten years. Instead, they devised a compromise. Hughes would not appear in person, no but high from his penthouse in the Britannia Beach, he would conduct a long-distance interview by phone with a panel of reporters that had known him before he turned to a life of isolation. It was a risky move. Hughes's lucid hours were becoming less and less frequent. The longer the interview, the larger the chance that he might let something slip that would betray his true mental state. It was a risk they had to take. A phone interview was the only feasible option. And so on January 7th, 1972, Howard Hughes picked up the phone and called into his first press conference in more than a decade. Now, I actually managed to track down a vinyl record of this call that was released at the time. I thought it would be cool to play some of that here for context and also so you can know what his voice sounds like. But there have unfortunately been some shipping delays, which means that it's just not going to get here in time. Maybe at some point I'll go back and edit that into this episode uh, like it needs to be any longer. But if not, I'll see if there's some way I can share that recording with you, probably via the Hidden History Twitter page.
Side note, if you are not subscribed and you've listened to me talk for over three hours now, then it would be a great time to do so. I really appreciate every subscription, rating, and review. Anyway, we might not be able to listen to it, but over the course of this call, Hughes did exceptionally well. A panel of seven reporters from newspapers and television networks across the country asked him a wide array of questions to sure that the man on the phone was, in fact, Howard Hughes. Over the next two and a half hours, he recalled with astonishing accuracy the most specific facts about the engineering and design of his airplanes, along with the various facts of his career, demonstrating that though his health and well-being may have faded, his memory had not. Yet there was one area that Hughes slipped up and did so consistently, and that was remembering the names and contributions of other people. For Hughes, the memories of people for whom he had always felt alien and disconnected slipped through his mind like sand through your fingers. Even through Hughes's blunders, including forgetting that General Harold George had worked for him as the general manager of Hughes Aircraft, the press was satisfied that they were indeed speaking to Hughes. They asked him about the Irving book, ostensibly the purpose of the conference, and Hughes did his job in denying it in totality. Of it, he said, quote, I have never read it, I don't know what's in it, but this episode is just so fantastic that it taxes your imagination to believe that a thing like this could happen. I only wish I were still in the movie business, because I don't remember any script as wild or as stretching the imagination as this yarn turned out to be. The call had achieved its goal. Hughes went on to dismiss the suggestions that he had long hair and fingernails and only weighed 100 pounds, all of which were true. In a somewhat confusingly self-aware response to questions about his allegedly intense fear of germs, Hughes replied, quote, I come into contact with everyone from here to Salt Lake City and Los Angeles and back. I've got a staff that commutes regularly across the country, and I'm in proximity to them constantly. And if I have any fear of contagion, they would certainly bring it here. Anyway, I don't think this is the most particularly contagious free area that I'm in anyway. Here, Hughes is formulating a rather thoughtful and logical argument against his very own practices, which means that, even in his diminished state, he to some degree recognizes these compulsions that completely govern his life as irrational. Because, of course, Hughes was terrified of germs. If he had an overriding fear of one in particular, it was hepatitis. When Bill Gay's wife caught it in the early 60s, Hughes ordered Gay into quarantine and told him to work from home. His fear was so great that he did not let Gay meet with him in person for another 15 years. But anyway, now with the official rebuke of Hughes himself, Irving's biography scheme quickly collapsed, and before the month was out, he had admitted it was a fraud. Irving had gotten the general details of Hughes's life by somehow obtaining an early draft of the ghost-written memoirs of Noah Dietrich. Clifford Irving and his wife Edith were then tried for fraud, and Irving was sentenced to two and a half years, of which he served 17 months. Edith would serve time in both the United States and Switzerland. Howard Hughes had successfully defeated the fraudulent autobiography, but the act itself had caused other problems. After years and years as a total recluse, sometimes called the phantom financier, Hughes had once again entered the headlines. His long-distance phone interview made the front pages on newspapers around the world, and that was a problem. You see, Hughes shared a belief common among the very wealthy, and that is that the law does not apply to them. 
Accordingly, Hughes and his army of aides did not have any residential or working permits, not to mention visas. Any temporary papers they may have had had long since expired. The new spotlight shown on Hughes also brought attention to this matter, and under increasing pressure by the opposition party, the premier of the Bahamas sent immigration officers to the penthouse at Britannia Beach. Knowing that they were coming, Hughes's aides placed him on a stretcher and hid him on the fire escape until the immigration officials left. Such an event made it clear that Hughes's days in the Bahamas were numbered, and his overseers immediately set into motion a plan to relocate to a different luxury hotel somewhere new. To that end, before sunrise on February 15, 1972, an unconscious Hughes was placed on a stretcher, carried down the fire escape, and loaded aboard a waiting yacht. By 8 a.m. the next morning, they had arrived in Key West, where a lone American immigration official was waiting to meet them. This step was necessary for everyone else, but for Hughes, who did not have a passport, any immigration paperwork was merely a formality. This is no better demonstrated by what happened next. Hughes and his entourage boarded a jet and left for Managua, Nicaragua. Ruled by the far-right U.S.-supported dictator Anastasio Somoza, the Nicaraguan government welcomed Hughes with open arms, and as they started moving into the penthouse of the Intercontinental Hotel, the windows immediately taped shut, the Somoza government waived any official immigration requirements for Hughes or the Hughes party. Even with these generous accommodations, it would be less than a month later that, on March 13th, Hughes would depart Nicaragua for Vancouver, British Columbia. Immediately before his departure, Hughes received his first outside visitor in 15 years, meeting privately with Somoza on board Hughes's jet. For the next five and a half months, Hughes and his entourage would occupy the entire 22nd floor of Vancouver's Bayshore Inn. No matter where on earth he was, it didn't matter to Hughes just the same. The windows were sealed, and his routine of isolation would pick up right where it had left off in the last hotel obsessive watching of movies, sometimes the same one four or five times in a single day, and constant consumption of painkillers and various illegal drugs in already incredibly dangerous doses that were continually growing larger. He was eating and drinking less and less, and had become so severely constipated, a side effect of chronic codeine usage, that a special aide was hired just to administer enemas. The process was still so painful for Hughes that he sometimes passed out. As he was shuttled from hotel to hotel, the sealed-off world inside his bedroom staying exactly the same, it was clear, now more than ever, that Howard Hughes was not in control. Nothing proves this more than the plans being set in motion for the tool company. In 1972, the Hughes Tool Company, which Howard had described as a monument to his father's achievement that should be preserved by any means, would go up for sale. Ostensibly, the reason Hughes's executives gave him for the necessity of selling the tool company was to pay for the TWA judgment, and on the surface, that makes sense. The Hughes organization did not have $145 million on hand. If they sold the oil tool division, the profits of which were now just a fraction of what they had been at their height, they could raise the necessary money. But what was the rush? The TWA judgment was a few months away from being heard on appeal to the Supreme Court, and Raymond Cook was confident that it would be overturned. Hughes himself did not under any circumstances want to sell Toolco, but at this point, Hughes was no longer making the decisions. 
Bill Gay and associates set up a new entity that would be the publicly traded Hughes tool company, and pressure mounted on Hughes to affix his signature to the papers. Eventually, the SEC got involved when it picked up on the very true rumors that the Hughes empire was being run by an army of anonymous middlemen, and that Hughes himself was being compelled to sell the tool company against his will. They intervened to postpone the sale until Hughes signed a notarized document in the presence of bank officials testifying to his desire to sell the tool company. On August 29th, Hughes and his aides pack up and leave Vancouver, resuming their post in Nicaragua in the penthouse of the Intercontinental. Shortly after that, Hughes indicated that he would be willing to sign the necessary documents. The pressure mounting on him to do so was immense, and he had no party representing his interests. Hughes himself didn't have the strength anymore to put up a real fight. It was only a matter of time before he relented. On September 25th, 1972, after much hemming and hawing as he was wont to do in stressful high-stakes situations, Hughes signed the documents authorizing the sale in the presence of an executive from Merrill Lynch. The sale completed on December 7th, and Hughes would get $150 million for the oil tool division just enough to cover the TWA judgment. Like many of the business deals in the later half of his life, Howard Hughes had gotten the short end of the stick. His advisors and executives were adamant that the tool company had to be sold in 1972, one of its most disappointing recent financial years for some arcane tax reason. It was a good enough justification for Hughes to believe it, as he liked few things more than dodging taxes, but it wasn't true. Over the next few years, the fortune of the tool company would recover rapidly, and a year later, its price per share was over double what Hughes had received for it. All the powerful old-line Hughes executives like Bill Gay, Chester Davis, and Nadine Henley happened to find themselves in controlling executive positions in the new publicly traded company, and they gave themselves what Hughes had dangled in front of them but had always refused. Stop. The ensuing success of the Chul Company made a great number of Hughes executives very wealthy. While there is no written evidence to confirm this, apparently no notes were taken at the meeting where it was decided to sell Hughes Tool, it's reasonable to think that, given the self-dealing attitudes that were so prevalent throughout the Hughes empire, that the timing of this sale was meant to lift the Chul Company out of the old man's pocket for as little as possible, allowing a coterie of powerful executives to reap all the rewards for themselves. The Chul Company deal also provided for a restructuring of the Hughes assets, the oil tool division would be made the property of the new publicly traded Hughes Tool Company, and the rest, the casinos, the mines, Air West, Hughes Helicopter, would be placed in the possession of a new entity called the Suma Corporation, a holding company organized by Bill Gay. Hughes, perhaps aware of how the rise of Suma represented the total loss of control of his assets, managed only to criticize the name. Indeed, calling it Summa, a Bill Gay creation, was itself a sign of Hughes's powerlessness. Naming his businesses and assets was one of the few things from which Hughes derived great enjoyment. As a matter of fact, when he signed over his power of attorney, the document contained a provision that prevented anyone from changing the names of his properties. Now, not only was he unable to even retain that function, but the resulting company did not even bear his name. How could his myth and legend continue if his own company was called something else? 
To make matters worse, just over three weeks after the papers were signed finalizing the Chul Company's sale, on January 10, 1973, the Supreme Court heard the TWA case and decided in favor of Hughes. The judgment was overturned. Hughes would not have to pay $145 million. Though it was a bitter victory, the TWA win had taken with it any notion of the necessity of selling the Chul Company. If they had only waited a few months, as Hughes had wished, he would still have been in possession of his strongest asset. For the rest of 1972, Hughes continued his isolated life as usual. Then, on December 23rd, at 12.29 a.m. local time, a 6.3-magnitude earthquake struck Managua. The Intercontinental Hotel shook violently, and high up on the top floor, the penthouse was in disarray. Papers were everywhere, drawers were flying out of desks, a massive speaker almost tipped over and crushed Hughes. Soon, the hotel lost power. Once the tremors had subsided, between four and 11,000 people lay dead in the surrounding city. Massive amounts of infrastructure and housing lay destroyed. Over 300,000 people were displaced. Hughes, never one to rally his resources to the benefit of others, left the very next day on a private jet bound for England, taking up residence in the ninth-floor penthouse of London's Inn on the Park. Only a week after his arrival, the only other guest on the ninth floor, a Canadian businessman named Bernard Cohen, left the hotel in a huff due to the, quote, intolerable conditions created by the Hughes presence, including a mandatory escort via armed guard any time they wished to enter the ninth floor elevator. It was in London that longtime Hughes acquaintance Jack Rial, formerly a powerful executive at Lockheed, joined the team of penthouse staff. Hughes had asked for him specifically. It was discussions about aircraft engineering with Royale that helped Hughes recover from his 1950s mental breakdown. With his new presence in the suite, Hughes, for who the past decade had been essentially in and out of a vegetative state, seemed to be returning to life. That meant bad news for the aides and executives that now held the reins of the empire. If Hughes returned to an active life, ended his seclusion like he had talked of multiple times in the past year, then he would most certainly attempt to reassert control over his assets. Such an event would spell disaster for the years of meticulous planning that people like Bill Gay had invested into securing their power. Hughes was even talking about returning to the cockpit. It was unthinkable. One of the aides told Rial, quote, Go home. You're getting him alive. It's easier to take care of him when he's in bed. However much his aides resisted, Hughes was in fact determined to return to aviation, and in May 1973, he left his bubble for the first substantial time in over 15 years. Hughes was going to a local airport outside of London to perform a test flight on an aircraft he was looking to buy, a Hawker Sidley 748, a moderately sized plane with two turboprop engines. After inspecting the plane and taking his spot in the pilot seat, Hughes, who had not regularly worn clothing in over a decade, proceeded to strip naked and take to the sky for the first time in over 20 years. Over the remainder of the spring and summer, there were three more flights in a number of different aircraft. It looked like Hughes was actually keeping his word about returning to aviation and leaving behind some of his reclusive ways. What could have been a positive outlet for Hughes, some kind of 
path to recovery from his very serious mental illness came to a halt on August 9th, when under unknown conditions he fell in his suite at the Inn on the Park and fractured his hip. When a local doctor, William Young, visited Hughes to take x-rays, he remarked that the frail Hughes resembled one of the inmates he had seen in Japanese prison camps after the end of World War II. His physical condition was so deteriorated that during the surgery to insert a steel pin into his hip, the doctors were seriously worried that one of his incredibly decayed teeth would fall out and become lodged inside his lungs. Though the operation was a success with no complications, Hughes would never take the controls of an aircraft again. Ironically, in December 1973, just after his flying days were finally done, Hughes was inducted into the Aviation Hall of Fame. Soon after, on December 20th, Hughes once again packed up and left for the Bahamas, occupying the penthouse of the Xanadu Princess, fittingly owned by another reclusive magnate, Daniel Ludwig. Exactly one week later, on December 27th, a federal grand jury in Nevada indicted Hughes for stock fraud in his acquisition of Air West. Luckily for Hughes, and in all probability the motivation for the move, while England would have extradited him for such a charge, the Bahamas had just recently nullified their extradition treaty with the United States. Hughes would now be safe while hiding out from an increasing number of lawsuits back in America. Eventually, about a month later in January 1974, the indictment was overturned, only to be reinstated a few months later on July 30th. That November, a federal judge would once again overturn the indictment, and after an appeal from the Justice Department in May 1976, a month after his death, Hughes was reindicted. His estate was compelled to pay the shareholders of Air West a $30 million settlement. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. We're nearing the end, but there are still a few things we need to talk about. One of them is pretty critically important not only to Hughes, but for one of his longtime political allies, the one who had helped apply pressure to secure his gambling license and fended off the lawyers eager to prosecute him for antitrust violations. On June 17, 1972, when a group of burglars were caught inside the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate Hotel, it would prove to be a catastrophic problem for both Richard Nixon and Howard Hughes. It would not be until the beginning of 1974, when the Senate Watergate Committee was investigating the connections to the break-in, that alarm bells started to go off at Hughes HQ. Over the years, the Hughes apparatus had become one of the most powerful, widespread, and generous dark money operations in Washington. Not only had they given huge sums to Hubert Humphrey, but also hundreds of thousands to Nixon through his friend B.B. Rebozo. It was thought that one of the potential motivations for the break-in was to discover similarly embarrassing payments that Hughes had made to Larry O'Brien, the chairman of the DNC. The Hughes organization also had ties with E. Howard Hunt, a CIA agent and one of the Watergate burglars, and had even attempted to work with him to burglarize the safe of Hank Greenspun, the owner of the Las Vegas Sun. Outside of Hunt and Mayhew, both of whom were extremely tapped into the CIA, Hughes had other ties to the agency that were about to explode onto the scene. At 1 a.m. on June 5, 1974, about two months before Richard Nixon would resign, the night guard on duty at 7000 Romaine Street, Michael Davis, was just finishing his outside rounds. 
As he opened the special exterior doors Hughes had ordered from the building, secured by both combination and key, two men grabbed him from behind and forced their way inside. Davis was then bound and gagged and put in a nearby office as the thieves began to rustle through their surroundings, taking money and valuables, but mostly thousands and thousands of documents. Most of these were stored in massive safes that had been built into the walls of the building. The largest of them was secured by three separate doors, the inner two of which had been conspicuously left open. Soon after tying up Davis, two more men arrived with an oxyacetylene torch and cut through the first door in a way that only would have been practical if they had known the inner doors were open. Indeed, there were more signs that the Hughes burglary was an inside job. The robbers seemed to know exactly what they were looking for. As they rifled through the filing cabinets of Romaine Street, Davis would hear talk that suggested they were looking for specific papers, making remarks like, here it is, and this is it. The secrecy of the Hughes Empire's inner workings was such that knowledge of what papers were specifically in the archives could only be held by someone who worked in the building itself or had a connection to one. As the thieves progressed through Romaine Street, they torched through another safe in the office of Lee Murren, who was Hughes's personal accountant, and then broke into the office of Nadine Henley, Hughes's longtime personal secretary. Or, well, I guess that broke in is maybe an overstatement. Rather, they walked in. Michael Davis, blindfolded, heard them use a key to enter Henley's office. To say that building security was tight would be an understatement. Hughes had once ordered every unlabeled or unidentifiable key in Romaine Street melted down to a pool of metal. The thought that a thief could come across a key to the office of one of the most important people in the Hughes machine by happenstance does not stand to reason. Importantly, too, for the success of the robbery, the burglars knew where to avoid. There was only one other person in the entire building, one of the attendants who manned the building's call center, Operations, around the clock. Again, the location of Operations and the presence of the aid are things that only someone with intimate knowledge of the building's function would know. After finishing their pickings of the rooms, the thieves brought Davis down to a storage area, told him to wait there, and escaped. After waiting what he deemed a, quote, reasonable amount of time, Davis managed to knock a phone off the wall and patch through to the only other person in the building. Like every call, it was logged in the books. It came through at 4.04 a.m. The whole ordeal had lasted about three hours. The man in operations, Harry Watson, called the LAPD and they came to take Davis's statement. From the very beginning, the police, too, suspected that it was an inside job, an idea compounded by the fact that the Hughes people refused to give a list of any of the items stolen or indeed allow any of them to inspect the offices and vaults of Romaine Street. Part of this was due to the incredibly specific instructions that Hughes had laid down for the handling of all his relics and papers in the vaults, but most was because the documents contained therein were extremely sensitive. The vaults of Romaine Street contained decades of archived Hughes memoranda, contracts, letters, and more. Some of these, such as the tens of thousands of pages of memos on yellow legal pads that tracked Hughes's mental decline, would have been extremely embarrassing and damaging should they be made public. Still, in others, Hughes spoke in writing of plans to commit financial crimes, stock fraud at Air West, tax evasions, memos that laid bare the true purpose of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. These documents would be explosive if they ever saw the light of day. 
Still more were seemingly, quote, threats to national security, and their inclusion in the lost documents soon drew the attention of both the FBI and the CIA. What eventually leaked out of that last set of documents, and why, is something we'll talk about in a bit. First, let's finish the story of the Romaine Street robbery. Twelve days after the robbery, on June 17, 1974, a man who referred to himself as Chester Brooks called the office and asked to speak to Nadine Henley. Operations told the man Henley was out of town, which was true. She was currently at the secret Encino office used by her and other executives like Bill Gay. Next, the man asked to speak to Kay Glenn, who controlled and organized Hughes' aides, but Glenn was on vacation, so the two could not come to the phone. Upon hearing this, the man who called himself Chester Brooks told operations that he had urgent information about the robbery. Then, this is what he'd said to Harry Watson, who was once again on duty at the phone. Quote, In a park in the San Fernando Valley, near your office, there is a trash can underneath a tree, and on top of the trash can there would be a white envelope to be seen only by Nadine Henley or Kay Glenn. Then, he told the Hughes people that if they wished to speak with him again, that they should place an ad in the Los Angeles Times containing the phrase Apex OK and Romaine Street's phone number written backwards. Immediately, something is wrong. How did the caller know about the secret Encino office? It disappeared from the documented Hughes rolls in 1958. The offices were locked tight and highly secured. The building listed no tenant for the space that they occupied. Even Hughes itself had thought it was closed. If that were not enough to prove that the caller was not a nut, after Brooks hung up, operations called Nadine Henley in Encino, and when she looked out of her third-floor window into the park directly across the street, she did indeed see a trash can underneath a tree with what looked like a white envelope on top. In the classic dramatism that we've come to expect from the Hughes organization, Henley was convinced that the thin white envelope actually contained a bomb. After telling the police about her suspicions, the entire LAPD bomb squad ended up in a small park in Encino, disarming what ended up being an envelope with two slips of paper inside. One of them was a small flashcard with two phrases, Parvin Dorman and Air West. Later, analysis of the ink would prove that this card was written on the typewriter in the Romaine Street conference room. The other paper, a classic Hughes yellow legal pad memo addressed to Robert Mayhew, expands on what exactly the note card means. In the memo, Hughes asks Mayhew if it would be possible to acquire the Parvin Dorman Company, the owner and operator of three Las Vegas casinos, in the same manner that Hughes went about purchasing Air West, i.e. through stock fraud. The memo was dated June 6, 1969, while the Air West fraud was still in progress, ten months before the deal would close on April 3, 1970. This was one of the very sensitive Hughes memos that I mentioned previously, the ones where he spoke in writing about committing crimes. Its inclusion in the envelope meant that this Chester Brooks character had access to at least some of the papers that had been stolen in the robbery. In accordance with his request, the Hughes people placed an ad in the next day's Los Angeles Times and waited. On the 20th, three days after the first, the second call from Brooks came through for Nadine Henley. In it, he asked for $1 million for the documents, delivered in two increments of $500,000, each of which would secure half the papers. The man said he would call back the following day at an arranged time to get an answer from Henley. The two agreed on three o'clock, but if the Summa executives had any desire to recover the stolen papers, they had a funny way of showing it. 
When Brooks called for Henley at four the following day, he was told that she was in a meeting and couldn't come to the phone. The Hughes people never heard from him again. Now, there is, of course, more to this story. After all, who is Chester Brooks? But before we get into answering that, I want to take a little refreshing topic change and talk about one of the things that leaked out of these stolen Hughes papers. On December 9th, 1971, in the dry docks of the Sun Shipbuilding Company outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the first sections of the hull were laid for a massive, technologically advanced, and highly secretive ship. When the construction was complete 11 months later in November 1972, it was said that the new vessel, christened the Hughes Glomar Explorer, was going to revolutionize the mining industry. You see, the ship was operated by Global Marine, a special Hughes subsidiary, thus the Glomar name. The company, as well as its deep ocean mining division, had been created for the sole purpose of managing the Explorer. To the public, the Glomar Explorer was portrayed as one of the most, if not the most, technologically advanced ships ever made. For many years, mining experts and oceanographers had known of the presence of large nodes of valuable minerals that covered the sea floor, containing normally rare and strategically important elements such as cobalt and magnesium. The monetary value of these nodes could be calculated in the trillions of dollars, and that's in 1970s money. Yet, for however valuable they might have been altogether, it was a common belief at the time among industry experts that the mining of these nodules was currently economically unviable as well as seemingly technically impossible. The size of these nodes could range from a baseball to a loaf of bread, and they were found on the seafloor at depths measured in miles. To harvest such things in an efficient manner, and to do so at a scale that could still generate a profit, would require a miracle. But to the public, this was not necessarily a problem. After all, Hughes had seemingly done the impossible before. What's to say he couldn't do it again? Soon, even people who should have known better were brought under the spell of the Glomar promises. Legendary oceanographer Jacques Cousteau would later comment, quote, We had to treat it seriously because we all knew that Howard Hughes does not involve himself in economic undertakings. That quote, of course, becomes much funnier when you know that practically every single business venture Hughes ever entered into was an uneconomic undertaking. Still, it demonstrates the power of the Hughes mythos. Cousteau was not the only person who was taken in by the reports coming from Global Marine's Deep Ocean Mining Division. Hughes himself, then holed up in the penthouse of the Britannia Beach, also believed that this new ship which bore his name would be the key to ever greater riches, bringing him in his twilight years to levels of wealth and power far beyond even the most prosperous years of the Hughes empire. There was, however, a significant problem. The Glomar Explorer did not contain a single piece of equipment that actually was intended for mining. The Deep Ocean Mining Division was created and staffed entirely by CIA agents, and indeed, the entire entity of Global Marine was created to provide CIA cover for this story. The real purpose of the Explorer was to recover the wreck of K-129, a Soviet submarine that had sank on March 8, 1968, coming to rest on the ocean floor at a depth of three miles, approximately 1,500 miles northwest of Hawaii. It would do so by attaching a massive claw to over three miles of hydraulic pipe run from the ship, grabbing K-129 from the seabed, and hoisting it up into a 324-foot submersible barge called the HMB-1. 
HMB stands for Hughes Mining Barge. The apparent goal of raising K-129 was to recover a set of nuclear torpedoes, as well as a by-then-out-of-date Soviet codebook. The operation itself occurred in July and August of 1974. The explorer successfully gripped the submarine and began raising it towards the surface, but apparently, as the sub was about a mile and a half above the sea floor, the claw system suffered a catastrophic failure, and approximately two-thirds of the submarine, the portion containing the nuclear torpedoes, conning tower, and codebooks, broke off and fell back to the sea floor. Only about 34 feet of the sub made it back into the HMB-1. The papers relating to the Glomar Explorer operation, which would at the time be known as Project Jennifer and later as Project Azorian, were among those stolen in the Romaine Street robbery. Otherwise, this operation very likely would have never seen the light of day. A few months after the theft, details surrounding the Glomar Explorer slowly began to trickle out to the press, and the first story about the operation appeared on the front page of the Los Angeles Times on February 7, 1975. Immediately, the paper's publisher got a call from the CIA. They were sending a man down to their offices to explain why the Glomar story had to be killed. The publishers of the Times agreed, and the very next day, the Explorer article had been moved from the front page to the 18th. This was the beginning of a massive public relations blitch by CIA Director William Colby in an attempt to cover up the entire operation. If, however, he wanted to deny and refute claims about the Glomar's recovery mission, he went about it in a rather odd manner. Instead, Colby traveled to newspapers around the country and, in exchange for a commitment not to cover the story, gave hundreds of reporters in-depth presentations on Project Azorian. One of the common questions Colby received was about why the CIA selected Hughes as a front. The official answer was that Hughes was a, quote, great patriot and a strong anti-communist who believed in the CIA's mission. That, of course, was a lie. Hughes was not even aware of the CIA's mission. Instead, he was selected both due to the power of his name, evidenced by the prior quote from Jacques Cousteau, and due to his reclusiveness. The CIA was well aware of Hughes's degenerated mental state and his decades-long addiction to illegal narcotics. For the agency, these were perfect factors. They knew what it took many Hughes executives years to learn, that his isolation, addiction, and neuroses made him all the easier to manipulate. Eventually, Colby secured agreements not to publish the story from not only the Los Angeles Times, but from the Washington Post, NPR, Time, CBS, Newsweek, the New York Times, and more. Eventually, Jack Anderson, a columnist and radio host, decided that he did not want to heed the CIA gag order on the Glomar operation, and so on March 19, 1975, told his syndicated radio audience all the details he knew of the top-secret project. After Anderson's broadcast, it was open season for the other media outlets to break their silence, and the next day, the Hughes-Glomar Explorer was on front pages across the country. What should have been a damaging story for the CIA, spending over $350 million for a single-use purpose-built ship that did not successfully complete the job it was designed for, it was actually a huge public relations success for the agency. Most writers focused on the fantastical technical elements of the recovery mission, maintaining that, even if it was a failure, the fact that it was almost a success was astounding. 
The CIA basked in the glow of public praise at a time that it critically needed it. The Church Committee, which would uncover Project Mockingbird, MKUltra, the NSA, the hardtack gun, the family jewels, and more, had just been created two months earlier in January 1975. Side note, if you want to learn more about the Church Committee, check out episode 72. Anyway, Many of the reporters who were initially roped into this CIA web surrounding the Glomar story would later come to believe that the agency's entire media strategy had actually been intended to trick the reporters into writing positive stories under the guise of keeping it under a tight lid. And this takes us back to the Remain Street robbery. The Glomar papers were among those stolen, so did the CIA have any hand in the robbery itself? We don't know for sure, but we do know that shortly after the burglary, the CIA offered a $1 million bounty for the stolen papers, exactly the price that Chester Brooks had wanted, but abruptly lost interest and told the FBI that any further investigation into the robbery would be a threat to national security. The agency kept the Hughes organization under close surveillance. If they were not directly involved in the conception and execution of the theft, then they were at least much more aware of what really happened than they led others to believe. But anyway, going back to the robbery, to finish the rest of this story, we must introduce two new characters, a screenwriter and a relatively successful bit actor named Leo Gordon, and a man who had come to LA from St. Louis with a long rap sheet on charges ranging from assault to forgery. He had connections to the criminal world of the American Midwest, and for the past three years had been engaged in Los Angeles as a used car salesman. Just as it so happens, Michael Davis, the Romaine Street night guard who was tied up by the robbers, happened to earn more money during the daylight hours by selling used cars in a lot directly across the street. The man's name was Donald Ray Woolbright, and soon both he and Leo Gordon would be key players in the chain of possession of the stolen Hughes documents. As the story goes, Gordon was introduced to Woolbright when he purchased a used car from him in the spring of 1973. Apparently, he was so pleased with the quality of his pre-owned vehicle that he and Woolbright became friendly, and Gordon referred multiple friends to his lot to purchase their own cars. Then, sometime in the middle of July, around a month and a half after the robbery at Romaine Street, Woolbright shows up to Gordon's house agitated obviously with something weighing heavy on his mind, and tells him that he had come into possession of two full footlockers of Howard Hughes's personal papers. According to Gordon, Woolbright told him that he had been hired to make the document drop in the ransom between the thieves and the Hughes organization, and had been left with the documents when the negotiations were rebuffed by Nadine Henley. He displayed an in-depth knowledge of the robbery itself, saying that it was conducted by a professional team of four brought in from St. Louis. He could list objects that were stolen from Romaine Street that had not been mentioned in the media, a pair of vases from Nadine Henley's office, a set of Bulova wristwatches from Kay Glenn's office, and more. According to Woolbright, the true target of the theft was not money or valuables, though he did say that the cash stolen was over four times that which was reported. Instead, the real targets were sensitive documents in the Hughes vaults. After the robbers got away, he said, the papers were taken back to Las Vegas, the location of whoever in the Hughes organization had ordered the job, where the papers were reviewed and selectively destroyed. Those papers that were left over were some of the ones Woolbright had come into possession of. This would indeed explain why the Hughes people had no interest in recovering the documents, since it was obviously an inside job 
They already knew that the worst ones had been destroyed and simply did not care about getting the rest of them back. One suspected motive for someone at Hughes to commission the robbery was to destroy harmful documents that were about to be subpoenaed in a number of federal court cases, including the stock fraud suit from Air West. Indeed, when Romaine Street was served a few weeks after the robbery, the critical documents in all the cases were nowhere to be found. Anyway, Woolbright asked Gordon what he should do with the documents, and the two agreed that they should approach a lawyer, Maynard Davis, to see what he thought they could get in exchange for them. After Davis, who was initially skeptical, saw proof that the two were actually legit, not only did he notify the Hughes lawyers, but he told the two men, quote, If I were you, I would drop it. You are playing with dynamite. Apparently, they heeded Davis's wise advice. Gordon and Woolbright stopped shopping around town with Hughes's papers and gave up the idea of finding a buyer. Woolbright took his documents and went home. Eventually, his story about the origins of the Hughes papers slipped out as Gordon recounted the tale to a longtime personal friend, Frank Hronick. Hronick just so happened to work as an intelligence agent for the L.A. County District Attorney's Office. Immediately, his suspicions were aroused, and by the summer of 1974, he had made the connection. Hronick approached Leo Gordon and played a recording of the ransom call to Nadine Henley. It turned out that Chester Brooks sounded exactly like Donald Ray Woolbright. It was obvious that he played a more important role in the robbery than Bagman, but what did he do? How much did he know? The district attorney, accompanied by the FBI, now wanted Gordon to go undercover and re-establish contact with Woolbright, under the false pretense of having found a new buyer for the Hughes papers. The story was flimsy, and the streetwise Woolbright was immediately suspicious. He didn't show up to the arranged meeting spot, which was indeed being surveyed, and after making Gordon wait almost an hour alone in a Denny's, called the restaurant and arranged to meet in a new location. At the new meeting, Woolbright refused to cooperate with Gordon until he told the truth about police and federal involvement, after which he agreed to go along with the plan to get the rest of the papers. What really happened, though, is that Woolbright knew that he immediately needed to skip town. He said that he needed to travel out to the Midwest and Southeast to make contact with the thieves and not to tell anyone that he was leaving. In addition, he would need $3,500 from Gordon to help fund his travels, which he happily supplied. Woolbright left for his trip, and Gordon never saw him again. The FBI then advised that due to the sensitive nature of the documents in the archives and the potential important figures it could impact, that no FBI investigation should be made into the burglary. The final nail in the coffin was when the CIA told the FBI that any further investigation into the Romaine Street theft would be a threat to national security. The government then formed a case against Donald Woolbright on charges of receiving stolen property, to which he pleaded guilty in July 1975. In April 1977, a jury convicted him of the charge, but it was overturned on appeal. After a second trial ended in another deadlocked jury, the Los Angeles DA's office dropped the charges against Woolbright. He then moved along with his family to Ullman, Missouri, where he lived until his death in 2009. With the conclusion of the robbery saga, we're starting to round out 1975, the last full year of Hughes's life. At this point, his physical and mental condition had deteriorated to the state that you heard in the introduction. 
Initially, six foot three, years of severe malnutrition and dehydration had caused his skeleton to shrink three full inches. By December 1975, he weighed just over 100 pounds. The only time he left bed was when aides would carry him to the bathroom. His waking hours were spent watching and re-watching the same movies in an endless loop or staring blankly at the ceiling, his mind clouded by almost 30 years of drug addiction. At this point, his addiction had lasted so long and his tolerance become so high that he would take on a daily basis over 40 times the recommended dosage of codeine. There was enough of the stuff built up in his muscles, blood, bones, liver, and brain to kill over 100 healthy men. But the nature of Hughes's addiction was such that even in these staggering amounts, he continued to need increasing quantities of drugs. Eventually, his team of personal doctors grew wary of the vulnerability of their position. Hughes was obviously dying, and for decades they had not only overseen his physical decline, but supplied him with massive amounts of narcotics. Originally, they had been obtained through a vast network of fraudulent prescriptions, but eventually this source was replaced. For the last years of Hughes's life, his drugs came directly from a pharmaceutical company in New York City. Now, when discussing Hughes's addiction, a number of people have different ideas as to why he became such a heavy drug user. One prominent and popular theory, created by doctors who did not examine Hughes during his life, is that he experienced chronic pain resulting from the crash of the XF-11 and further suffered from a condition called allodynia which causes normally mundane things to become extremely painful. Now, this provides a neat explanation for why Hughes refused to cut his hair and nails, as well as wear clothes, but unfortunately, it's not supported by evidence. Due to the reclusiveness and mystery surrounding the personal life of Howard Hughes, histories of him are uniquely susceptible to misinformation and misinterpretation, especially when it comes to identifying the underlying disorders that caused his decline. Over the course of his life, Hughes was never examined by a psychiatrist, so we will never have a first-hand professional evaluation of his mental state. This ambiguity has allowed historians, doctors, psychiatrists, and the like to put forward their own theories to fill in the blanks. Without an in-depth knowledge of the subject, a lot of these theories can sound reasonable, but on closer examination, some have significant flaws. Going back to the idea that Hughes suffered from chronic pain, and this in turn caused him to severely self-medicate, this is one of those notions. The idea is simply not supported by evidence. Not only did Hughes miraculously have no long-term pain or disability from the XF-11 crash, only two of his fingers were a little stiffer than normal, but two out of three of his private doctors claimed that at the end of his life, Hughes was not in pain. Dr. Wilbur Thane, the third doctor, later claimed that Hughes was in constant, excruciating pain. Of course, he only said this to cover his ass. Thane was the one who supplied the drugs to Hughes. Indeed, he made this statement while being indicted by a federal court in Utah. The two other doctors, Lawrence Chafin and Norman Crane, both testified that Hughes was not in pain. In a trial after his death to determine what role the doctors played in his condition, Chafin said that Hughes took the drugs simply, quote, because he wanted to, and there was, quote, no legitimate medical reason for his usage. But anyway, as Hughes entered his final months, his body the picture of neglect and decay, his mind shattered, he still found ways to be cantankerous and difficult. 
he would do so even if it took the last of his energies. You see, it was clear to all around him, perhaps excepting Hughes himself, that he was dying. The end was in sight for Howard Hughes, and his days were numbered. For the old man, this may have even been a relief. He had not been in control of his affairs or even fully aware of his surroundings for many years. While he may not have suffered from allodynia, it's undoubtable that the state of his body, covered in bed sores, nearly skeletal, with ulcers, a blocked urinary tract, rotten teeth, a dislocated shoulder, hypodermic needles lodged deep inside his muscles, would have made for an immensely uncomfortable life. Many of these very serious conditions were the direct result of his out-of-control drug use. In this feeble state, with time running out, we can catch one final glimpse of the Hughes of old. You may recall that, over the course of his life, Howard Hughes obsessively rewrote and revised his last will and testament. Of all the versions that had drafted and redrafted over his life, only one was ever signed, the 1925 will he had drawn up before his marriage to Ella Rice. But Hughes had voided that document after the divorce in 1929. For decades, he had placated anxious executives by telling them that they would be well provided for in his will. Just like his promise of granting stock options, this too was a fabrication. Hughes merely sought to postpone the problem until it went away, a strategy that had served him very successfully in years past. This time, however, those that surrounded him were insistent. Hughes's death was seemingly imminent, and if he passed on without leaving a will, then control of the Hughes organization would be given not to the executives who had spent decades ensuring that would be the case, but instead to estranged relatives, many of whom Hughes had never even heard of, let alone actually met. If the family ended up taking over, then the Hughes executives feared that the first thing they would do is clean house, removing them from the posts they had held in some cases for over 20 years. Some employees, such as Dr. Thane and Hughes' medical staff, feared that a takeover by the relatives would result in their criminal prosecution. And so we have the background for what will evolve into one of the most opaque and litigious estate battles in history. Hughes, still clinging to life, repeatedly rebuffed his aides, telling them not to worry that he had made all the necessary provisions in his will, which was being stored someplace secret until the moment of his death. This, of course, is a lie. No such document existed, and Hughes knew it. Eventually, he won this battle with his aides and lawyers by simply refusing to reveal any information about this fake document and refusing to create an updated one. If Hughes, in his own mind, had just secured the final victory over his antagonists, it was not the total domination that he once demanded. Indeed, it's doubtful that Hughes's resistance had any notable impact at all. It was only a matter of time before he passed from the picture entirely. At some point in the early days of 1976, some anonymous executive decided that, once again, Hughes would relocate to a new penthouse across the globe. The true rationale beside this decision is not clear, but we do know that Hughes was convinced to go along with the move by being told that if he did not leave the Bahamas right away, it would be impossible to obtain more narcotics. It was a lie, but Hughes, who at that point had been addicted to drugs almost a full third of his life, shuddered at the thought. He quickly consented to the move, and so it was that on February 10th, 1976, the bedridden Hughes was put on a stretcher, loaded into a waiting jet, and flown to Mexico, 
where he would resume residence in the penthouse of the Acapulco Princess, room 2008. Here, in his suite that was so much like the other hotel rooms he had occupied over these last years of his life, Hughes continued to waste away. His body was literally eating itself. It consumed more bone mass on a daily basis than Hughes was capable of producing. It was only a matter of time. Just under two months later, on April 2nd, Hughes suffered from a seizure that caused him to slip into a deep coma. A full three days later, with no visible improvements in his condition, the penthouse aides reluctantly called Dr. Victor Montemayor. Though Hughes had a staff of three personal physicians, none really seemed to care enough to respond to the increasingly urgent calls from the penthouse. Indeed, when Dr. Wilbur Thane arrived days after he had initially been called, he went not into the bedroom to see Hughes, but into the aide's office. He spent the next three hours feeding sensitive papers and communications, many about the drugs he had supplied to Hughes, through the office's shredder. Less than 24 hours later, in the belly of a jet high above the Texas countryside, the life of Howard Hughes reached its end. The following day, doctors from Houston's Methodist Hospital announced after an autopsy that Howard Hughes had died of kidney failure. They included in their statement assurances that Hughes's corpse looked completely healthy, refuting claims of mental illness and long, twisting fingernails. On April 7th, less than two days after his death, Howard Jr. was interred alongside his father and mother in the Hughes family plot in Houston's Glenwood Cemetery. Once Hughes was in the ground, so began a vicious scramble to gain control of his estate. While SUMA executives started a wild goose chase to track down the mythical final will of Howard Hughes, an increasing number of lawyers set their sights on the administration of the estate itself. A number of factors could mean a massive payday for any number of different people. A key piece of information that would determine which family members became beneficiary of the will was also one that was difficult to quite determine. Howard Hughes's legal place of residence. He had not owned a home since 1940 when he sold his house in Los Angeles to evade income taxes. He had lived much of his life in California, but had died in Texas, the location of his corporate offices. Nevada, too, felt that they had a rightful claim to Hughes's residency, but for the last ten years of his life, he lived entirely outside the United States. Whichever was the correct decision was unclear, but whatever state was chosen would mean significantly different outcomes for the distribution of the estate, valued at approximately one and a half billion dollars, almost nine billion today. If it was decided that California or Nevada were his place of residence, then the entire fortune would go to his nearest living relative, his mother's younger sister, Annette Gano Lummis. You may recall that she lived with Howard Jr. and his father in Los Angeles for a time after his mother's death. If, on the other hand, Texas were chosen, then the Hughes estate would be split equally between his first cousins on both sides of the family. While the fight over his place of residence played out, the folks at Tsuma were getting desperate to find the will. So desperate, in fact, that they even hired a psychic who promised he could locate the document. He couldn't. Then, at the end of April 1976, it seemed that there was finally a break in the search. On April 27th, an official from the Mormon church returned to his office in Salt Lake City and found an envelope sitting on his desk. It was addressed to the church president, Spencer Kimball, and contained two pieces of paper. 
One was a note that explained that the contents of the envelope were supposedly found outside the home of the church's previous president in 1972. The other piece of paper, miraculously, appeared to be the last will and testament of Howard Hughes. The handwritten document sliced up the Hughes estate and distributed to a number of parties, Rice University, the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Boy Scouts of America, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, Jean Peters, Ella Rice, and more. Though a number of the provisions in this will were highly suspect, such as the idea that Hughes was giving one-sixteenth of his fortune to establish a home for orphaned children, by far the most surprising and confounding passage of the document, which would become known as the Mormon Will, was its provision to give one-sixteenth of the Hughes estate approximately $156 million to a Nevada gas station attendant named Melvin Dumar. Dumar claimed to be as surprised as anyone about his inclusion as a beneficiary. According to Dumar's story, he was driving through rural Nevada late one night in 1968 when he saw a man lying on the side of the road, bleeding from his right ear. He pulled over, brought the man into the car, and drove with him to Las Vegas. Apparently, this mystery man asked to be dropped off at the Desert Inn, and after Dumar lent him a quarter to make a phone call, he revealed himself to be none other than Howard Hughes, and disappeared into the night. Supposedly, Dumar's inclusion in the will was payback for saving Hughes's life almost a decade prior. Aside from the unusual inclusion of Melvin Dumar, a number of powerful people were quick to claim the Mormon will as legitimate, Noah Dietrich, who was listed as the executor of the document, claimed that the handwriting and signature were obviously genuine, a conclusion supported by two handwriting experts from ABC News. The timing of the appearance of the will, just as the Hughes organization was engaged in a fruitless search for the non-existent real document, was auspicious and caused many people with a vested interest to push for the legitimacy of the document. If it wasn't obvious by now, of course, the Mormon will was a forgery. There were a number of glaring and incredibly obvious errors throughout the document that were a dead giveaway. The one-page will was filled with egregious spelling errors which Hughes himself would have never tolerated. Names of associates were spelled incorrectly, and even simple words like fourth, divided, children, and among were misspelled. There were other signs as well, the document referred to the H-4 Hercules as the Spruce Goose, a name Hughes loathed and would not permit to be spoken in his presence. The executor of the will was named as Noah Dietrich. Hughes had supposedly written it in 1968, but his acrimonious split with Dietrich had happened over ten years prior in 1957. The charitable donations, too, were suspect. Throughout his life, Hughes did not develop a reputation as a charitable man, and for all his hundreds of millions of dollars, only ever donated a few thousand to charity during his lifetime. Eventually, as the evidence mounted that the Mormon will was a fraud, Dumar changed his story in January 1977. He had previously claimed that he had nothing to do with the appearance of the document in the offices of the Mormon Church, but after one of his fingerprints was found on the envelope, Dumar claimed that the document was actually given to him by a mysterious man driving a blue Mercedes-Benz, and that he had delivered it to Salt Lake City as he thought the church would be interested. Eventually, someone who claimed to be this shadowy Benz driver surfaced and claimed responsibility. His name was Levain Forsyth 
and in testimony that the court later determined to be, quote, fantasy, not fact, he recounted a tale of being a secret courier for Howard Hughes, even going so far as to claim that he met the man multiple times, something that should immediately alert you that he's telling a lie. Eventually, beginning in the fall of 1977 and continuing into the spring of 1978, two juries in Nevada and Texas decided unanimously that the Mormon will was a fabrication. The Texas court also decided that the Lone Star State was Hughes' legal residence. In the event that the real will was not found, which it wasn't, the Hughes estate would be split evenly between both sides of the family. The collapse of the Mormon will did not stop scores of others from trying to make fraudulent claims to the Hughes fortune. In the months following his death, more than 30 documents were produced that all claimed to be the legitimate last will and testament of Howard Hughes. One had the estate being given to 10 people chosen by social security number, another gave a random American $1 million each week until the money ran out. Some of the documents bequeathed the entire estate to various charities. One Nevada man claimed to be Hughes's illegitimate son, saying that he communicated with the billionaire through a radio chip that had been implanted in his brain. Accordingly, he filed a claim for the entire estate. All of these new documents were immediately recognized for the frauds that they were. The extended Hughes family then rallied around William Rice Lummis, a lawyer and first cousin of Howard Hughes, to act as the administrator of the estate. Over the next several years, Lummis gained control over the Hughes operations and for the first time in many years turned around the dismal financial trends seen in many of the Summa assets. In September 1981, after years of litigation, the Hughes estate, valued conservatively at $500 million or $1.6 billion today, was distributed equally throughout Hughes' relatives on both sides of the family some of whom were both scornful of the money and their relationship to Hughes himself. William Rice Lummis would remain CEO of the Hughes companies until his retirement in 1990. He died in 2017. In 1985, Hughes Aircraft was sold to General Electric, forming Hughes Electronics, which would later become DirecTV. The aircraft company would become fully defunct upon its sale to the defense contractor Raytheon in 1997. The Desert Inn was demolished in the year 2000. The H-1 racer currently sits on display at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. The H-4 Hercules, still to this day the largest plane ever constructed, is housed in a massive hangar at the Evergreen Aviation Museum in McMinnville, Oregon. Many of Hughes' personal papers can be found in the Howard Hughes Collection of the University of Las Vegas. The books I used for this episode were Howard Hughes, His Life in Madness by Donald Barlett and James Steele, Howard, The Amazing Mr. Hughes by Noah Dietrich and Bob Thomas, Hughes, The Private Diaries, Memos, and Letters by Richard Hack, and the revised and expanded version of Howard Hughes, Power, Paranoia, and Palace Intrigue by Jeff Schumacher. Along with these, I used a number of other great sources that are listed in the description of this episode. It's undeniable that, when reflecting upon the life of Howard Hughes, we can extract a number of lessons learned in moments of triumph. In the flight of the Hercules, we can take away the admirable morals of seeing commitments through to their end and setting far-reaching goals that push the boundaries of what people imagine is possible. From his record-setting aviation days, we can learn about the benefits of thorough planning and coordination, of exploits that inspire courage that often straddles stupidity. 
But for every positive theme, it feels like there are maybe five or six negative ones. Indeed, inasmuch as Howard Hughes is a role model, and he is to this day still greatly admired, many of the lessons that we can extract from his life revolve around what not to do. From Hughes, we can learn how not to manage a business, how not to form strong relationships, how not to treat other people, how not to spend your money. The list goes on. You might have a few in mind of your own. As someone who's certainly a bit, uh, shall we say, detail-oriented, the life of Howard Hughes has always fascinated me as this kind of parable about the dangers of letting your obsessions completely dominate your life. And those are just a few of the many aspects in which Hughes is a compelling and complex historical figure. He is a person of immense, almost Shakespearean tragedy. The very thing that allowed for his great achievement would be that which would enable his own ruination. The story of Howard Hughes is the story of a man who destroyed his life through proximity to great wealth. Now, if you attentively wait for each new episode of Hidden History, you might have realized that this one came out a little later than usual. I had originally planned for this to be my June episode, but as you may be able to imagine, it took me a little longer to write this script than I had anticipated. Given that this episode is probably a good deal over four times longer than last episode, which was in and of itself maybe twice as long as usual, I think that this episode is going to count for both June and July, which seems like a fair deal to me. If you've made it this far, then honestly, God bless you. This was a real marathon, and if you're still not subscribed at this point, then honestly, what are you doing? I hope that you've enjoyed this episode and maybe learned a thing or two about Howard Hughes. Thanks so much for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off. Let me sing you a song about Vegas town and a poor old Howard Hughes Locked up there in his hotel suite trying to find his shoes Oh, and he got so much to lose Poor old Howard Hughes and all of his blues Well, his nurses and his chauffeurs all stand around inside Watch the door and wait on him, whatever's on his mind And that's a hell of a lot to do Just to guard old Howard Hughes and all of his blues if he didn't have a nickel, if he didn't have a dime, he could do whatever he damn well pleased and do it all the time. But success is just a mess over to lose. Oh, how refuse knows blues. Well, he's always in the papers, he's always on the news But no one knows who's Hughes or who, or even what's the truth Or who is getting screwed, if it's them, you know who, and all of his blues And way down yonder on the Vegas Strip, where the regular people pass Someone said he's not too well, I heard he's sinking fast But that's unofficial sources to the news About poor old Howard Hughes and all of his blues if he didn't have a nickel, if he didn't have a dime, he could do whatever he damn well pleased, and he do it all the time. But success is just a mess of where to
Now everybody writing them books about him, some of them are awfully long. Didn't really have all that much time, so I thought I'd just write this song. Gotta get me in a few licks too, about poor old Howard, using all of his blues. And if he didn't have a nickel, if he didn't have a dime, he could do whatever he damn well pleased and do it all the time. But success is just a mess, I'll go where'd you lose? Poor old Howard, using all of his blues.